Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. I told my father, I'm like, don't worry, for the holiday episode, we'll just call you. You can do that now? Damn right, old man. <laughs> Welcome to Morelia Python Radio with your hosts, Eric Burke and Owen McIntyre. All right, welcome to Morelia Python Radio. Uh, tonight, we're going to be doing our breeding carpet python episode, and we've got a lot of requests for how to breed carpet pythons. I'm not really sure why, because they're pretty simple to breed. Every but, year we do this. And but, also, there are eight years of this episode in the archive. We yeah. understand the audio sucks, but God damn it. Yeah, <laughs> so we're, we're bringing it to you fresh, nice, nice sounding audio. And, of course, every year, Owen and I learn something new about... Uh, what not you know, to do. Yeah. You know, things yeah. pop up. You know, mm-hmm. every year is, is... You can learn something from every year. So... Basically, we're going to be phrasing this um, around breeding carpet pythons, but a lot of these same ideas can apply to many species of pythons. Yeah, I'll dip into bread lie, too, because I did have some requests about um, breeding bread lie. Um, for well, a few people who this might be their first year. Right. But it's usually one of those things where uh, some people – who are into bread lie ask me how to breed them when they just bought a pair of neos it's like you got time to do some research so right yeah so yeah i think maybe maybe that's where we should start so carpet pythons being um many different subspecies coming from many different parts of australia mm-hmm. you know are in different climates and that being said <clears throat> some of them breed in the winter and mm-hmm. some of them breed in the summer so or in the spring. Uh, so you have spring breeders and you have winter breeders. Spring breeders would be things like diamond pythons, bread lie, um, southwestern carpet pythons. Inlands kind of fall into that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have that group. And basically, I, I mean, the reason would be, my thinking would be that because of the temperature, it gets so cold during the winter. That they sort of, they don't really hibernate. They kind of, what would you call it, Owen? Brewmate? They, they kind of slow down. I mean. <clears throat> right. Because uh, you have snakes that, I have snakes that brewmate and hibernate. And then you pour a, mulch, a bunch of mulch, like my king snakes. Uh-huh. I, I add a bunch of mulch and I put water in there and I leave them be and they burrow down and they go to sleep. Right. Um, the bread light don't really do that. They kind of just slow down. Right. And the thing is, is that it does get cold, but it also gets warm. Yeah. So we're like where I'm brewmating. One of the reasons I didn't really have too much success with a lot of my collier birds last year is I kind of brewmated them in the same rack as my bread lie, where my bread lie dropped down to about 50 at nighttime at the lowest point, And then they get back up to about 83 during the daytime. Right. For, for a king snake, that's not what's supposed to happen. What's supposed to happen is supposed to get to like 65, 50 something like that, and stay there. Like, it's supposed to, like, not go. There can be some temperature fluctuations, but it's not supposed to be hitting 80-something degrees. Um, so that's really what you do with the bread lie. And I kind of do this um, 
it's weird because you almost start them with the carpet pythons when things start dialing down. Mm-hmm. And then when the carpets hit their lowest, which is about, let's say, like 60. Okay. Maybe, like, you know, I think that's as low as I go. Right. You, I usually remove the bread lie and put them in a different room and then keep, keep taking them downward. So they keep dropping as the carpets kind of level, level off. So because they keep dropping, you, you imagine your breeding season almost like a U-shape where you go down, you get to your lowest point temperature-wise during the nighttime, and then you start going up. Mm-hmm. Because the bread lie kind of dip lower mm-hmm. than the carpets, it takes them longer to come back up. So around, we'll say March-ish. Okay. February-ish, somewhere right around in there, uh, is when the bread lie move back into the main python room. Okay. Because the, other, the carpets have been up since, have been warmed up since February. They've been paired up. And you might even start getting some eggs from some of your really early breeders. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's when the bread lie, the bread lie get in the room, and that's when you start pairing, and that's when you start seeing locks is March uh, to probably about May-ish. Mm-hmm. And then you usually get eggs in June. Okay. And then you usually have baby bread lie hatch in August. Which is... That would be similar to what you would see in diamond pythons as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's very, very similar. Um, now, I mean, you can have overlap. Like, I've had coastal eggs laid the same week bread lie eggs are laid in the summer months. And then I've also had coastal eggs hatch in September, where I've also had brettle eggs hatch in September. Like, it, it just kind of goes that way, where it's... It's not set in stone. It's just normally that's how it works out. So right. So <clears throat> I think I guess we'll start, you know, at the beginning. Which you know, now that we got the winter spring breeders kind of out of the way, so everybody kind of understands that. You mm-hmm. know, as we go through this, we'll really be talking about for the most part would be the winter breeders, and we'll kind of like jump off, and you know, Owen will sort of give his input you know, to bread lie and stuff like that as we kind of go through this. Because they also, because they come from colder climates, they take longer to mature than, mm-hmm. you know, say your, your, your winter breeders because, um, you know, they don't really go down as cold, um, you know, uh, as the other ones. But they still do get kind of cold. Um, I think the biggest question that I get is, you know, what size do they have to be? Um, to breed and I, I speak for myself my collection is based off of age it's what I look for um, as it should be when yeah. it comes to um, I think I think when I look at age just by default they'll be at adult size um, by say three years um, yeah and, and you know what's funny is that if you say like I had a bunch of three-year-olds go, Last year, uh-huh. boys and girls, and uh, I got a bunch of slug clutches. I also got a bunch of males that didn't really produce. This year, uh-huh. all those animals put on a ton of size, right? And I didn't even I didn't even feed them at extra. Like I didn't even feed them extra at all. Right. I just fed them like I've always been feeding them. 
they hit that four-year-old growth spurt. And now you're looking at some beefy adult animals. Like, they, they have the mature heads. They have uh, the boys have flushed out bodies. They don't look like these skinny little things. They're more muscle. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, all right. I guess I guess we'll see how this goes. So it's really three to four. That's your sweet spot, in my opinion, for both males and females. You can get a male to go as early as, what was it, 32 months or yeah. something like that? Yeah, they can go You can. Young. You can. But usually a three-year-old male and a four-year-old female is right where you want to be. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, with a male, you don't really run the risk of damaging right you know, the snake he's either going to breed or he's or he won't you know or he's going to run in terror right. which is very quickly you know you very quickly know that's what's happening <laughs> yes when he's up against the glass <laughs> whipping around wildly it's time to pull him you know he's not having a fun time and also keeping him in there is going to stress him out and it could potentially stress out the female right. so don't force it right yeah so it's it's uh I, I I have done females at two and a half years, um, and I've had oh, success boy. with it. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, the more and more that I breed, the more and more that I'm just, you know, trying to make it the best for the animals. And I just think that three or four is, is, is probably the best age for carpets, in my yeah. opinion, you know. Well, um, and this is something we kind of don't ever – people are always quickly trying to – feed these things as much as humanly possible to get them up to breeding size as fast as humanly possible to get them to breed as fast as humanly possible. It's really in your best interest to do it slowly. Yeah. Number one, it's cheaper. Number two, the health of the animal when it comes to breeding age will be a lot better. Number three, you're going to get actually more eggs out of that animal the longer it waits. So a four-year-old will lay more eggs than a three-year-old, even if they're the same size. It's just the way it is. So, um, all, it also your slow grow four year old is going to live to be 20 something. Your fast grown three year old that you try to breed is going to die. Yeah. Maybe not now, but <clears throat> maybe soon. 10 years, maybe at yeah. the most, you know, and that, and that's, that's stupid. It's dumb. It just wait. <laughs> yeah. So your spring breeders, I would say probably maybe five. Six, five to seven. Yeah, yeah, for females, you know, mm-hmm. and males mm-hmm. are probably, I would say, three to four. Yeah. Um, just because and they just take longer to mature. Cause they do. And people tend to give up on them quickly. Like if the bread light doesn't breed at four in the python room with everybody else, people ditch it. Yeah. And talking to a lot of breeders um, that have been on the show um, over the years and and most have sort of the same thing, like breeding the winter breeders versus the spring breeders. It's not one is harder or easier. It's just that it's different. So mm-hmm. where people get screwed up is they just kind of like, you know, they if they're going to be bred live, they try to breed it like they're breeding a coastal carpet. And, you know, that the, when you're introducing and, you know, when that female is building and when she ovulates are all different so that, you know, you might get, if you put them together too early, like the spring breeders, you're not, mm-hmm. you could either not see any action at all or the the male could be introduced too early and then, you know, the female, you know, ends up uh, producing slugs. Um 
So it's, yeah. it's just about timing. So, you know, that's, that's, that's sort of what you have to think about. Um, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, ideally in a perfect world, like Owen was saying about how he's moving his bread lie, you know, out of the room. So you'll hear me talk about how I have two rooms, a cold room and a, and a warm room. So in my cold room is where I keep those species that are the spring breeders. And in the regular room is where I keep the winter breeders. Um, mm-hmm. And it just makes it easier. It just makes it so much easier because you don't have to worry about screwing one up or the other, you know. Um, and the other thing we'll get into is like breeding crosses. <laughs> like how does <laughs> that come into play? Um, I can speak on that because I've done that. So, um, you know. Uh, we'll get to that, but <clears throat> I guess um, another question that I get all the time is, you know, how do you put together a breeding project? Um, I mean, for me, it's really just focusing on what you like, and you know, I will preface this by saying that just because you like carpet pythons doesn't mean you have to breed them. Right? You know, it, you, there's no rule that says uh, if you're going to have a male and a female that, you know, you have to breed them. I mean, most people will want to because they just want to, you know, see the whole life cycle of the snake and, and what it does and, and just experience that. But, you know, it you, is really cool. I mean, yeah, as, as far as you get down to it, getting getting babies hatching out of eggs is just so cool. But it, it again, like you said, you don't have to. But if you're going to do it correctly, because I think a lot of people kind of get flushed into it and they get caught up in it and they maybe put the animal's welfare as second, you know, it get you can always get eggs next year. Yeah, really. There's there's no reason to force it. There's no reason to to push an animal. When I say I'm really going to put the food to an animal, I'm going to offer it an extra rat a month. Right. Woo. I'm not I'm not gonna force feed it. I'm not gonna slam things down its throat. I'm not gonna try to do this. I'm just gonna try to feed it a little bit more and see what happens. I've had like right now I have these the Brisbans who are a little small for their age and I keep feeding them and they keep eating, but nobody's growing. And I'm like, I hate you guys. Like, but in a month or two they might start just exploding. I don't know. But it's it, it this is the way it is. And it, it's funny that you bring that one up in particular. You know, yeah. there's some thought that because they're coming from, you know, <clears throat> those coastal carpets are coming mm. from a range that, you know, that's sort of just right above where coastals and um, diamond pythons integrate. So they're getting kind of cold in that area. Um, yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I think for me, how I'm mm. going to approach it with mm. with them is that I'm going to keep them in the co- in the cold room. Really, I'm going to sort of like focus on them as uh. like a winter. I mean, a spring breeder. So well, I I bought them at I bought them at two years old. Uh-huh. I think they're two. They might even be closer to three. And compared to my other three year olds, they are on the small side. It's like two animals from Eric Burke just made their way into my collection. <laughs> right. And and it's the what's Bonsai. wrong with you guys? <laughs> like, oh my God. Right. Like, you know, it's so I keep and also there's the reason I haven't been able to take pictures of them is that their food response is insane. I'm like, I'm gonna open this drawer and I'm gonna take a oh god, like face teeth, and I'm like, okay, so mm. I've been able to take a picture of them, but 
you, you know, you kind of want them to be a little bit bigger because I want to breed Brisbane's. I, I, I want baby Brisbane's. Yeah. And they're the big coastals. You know? I know. The I want big coastal breeding Brisbane's. Oh, yeah. my God. Yeah. They're, they're the big ones. So. I'm like, grow, grow, my babies, grow. <laughs> so you kind of, you know, I, I mean, it always fascinates me, like, you know, for, for people that are into reptiles and, like, what draws us to a certain look or mm-hmm. one species over another or, you know, boas over pythons and, you know. A war that will forever continue. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's it's just weird how, like, you know, for whatever reason, you know, this species clicks with you. You know, it resonates with you, and, and you kind of latch on to that. Now, I would say you follow that species regardless Always. of what the financial value of it is because, you know, Owen and I were talking earlier, and, and he's telling me the price of Savu pythons and stuff where, like, you know, a couple of years ago, you probably couldn't give them away and nobody gave a shit. And now, all of a sudden, they've made a resurgence and, you know, people yeah. people are after them and, and not a lot of people have them. So it's supply and demand, you know, that kind of thing. So And stick to your guns. And if you're wanting to be – because I think I've told the story numerous times where I set up at a show and some guy next to me was – selling bearded dragons and he said there's no money in carpets get into something else and he's like really my love is amazons and emeralds but there's no money in that can you imagine if that dude had established a breeding colony of amazon and emerald tree boas yeah how much money do you think he'd be making right now yeah and you know it's to me i i I never worry about really the whole who gives a damn the money part of it because i think that eventually it'll kind of uh Shut yeah. up, Roxy. Yeah, God. I know, right? <laughs> I'm going to have to edit that out. Goddamn dog. <laughs> I never really worry about the financial part of it. I kind of just, you know, if it, if it's, it, I just kind of focus, for me, I just kind of focus on what I like, and I try to show people why I like it. You know, you should. If, if you like, if you like it too, then come along for the ride. If you don't, that's- then, you know, that's fine too, but don't. Don't poo-poo my project because it's not something that you like. You know what I mean? Right. And also, everything is cyclical. Like, at one point, carpet pythons were the ugly kids in the back of the room. Mm-hmm. Like, that is where we came into it. We chose these ugly creatures. Yes. <laughs> what does it say about us? Right, exactly. And then the morph things happened, and at one point, carpets were really high up there. Yeah. And eventually, at one, eventually... There will be no new morphs coming down the pipe. There won't be. Right. There will be no new combinations coming down the pipe. There will right. be no new localities. And a lot of the people who are jumped into this thing just to make a quick buck will leave. They will go somewhere else. Right. They will do something else. Right. That's how it works. If you're in it just for the money, it shows. And also, you're really not. you should really enjoy it. You shouldn't really be forcing yourself to keep and breed animals you do not have an interest in or like. Because trying to predict what the reptile hobby is going to like... You can't. You cannot. I mean, could you have sat there and said that African house snakes were going to be one of the next big things? No. You would have looked at me like I had four heads if I was sitting here going, I got to buy up all these African house snakes. They're going to be really hot soon. No one knows. Right. No one knows. So it's, you know, I think I th- if you 
I love it, get into it, that's it. Yeah, I think part of that too is like, you know, again, it's, it's, I've always been of the mindset that you kind of make your own market. You know what I mean? You You kind of like, you kind of set the, the tone for why you like the species that you like, you know? Um, And I think today with there being a lot more reptile podcast, what's Mm. happening is that, you know, you have a lot of different people talking about that exact thing, what they like, what they're into, whatever. Um, And I think, I, I mean, I think part of, you know, why carpets became popular. I mean, we're, rewinding back to like 2012 um you know we've talked about this before is that you know you had a podcast that's what we were yep. doing then you book. had the the book came out and then you had carpet fest for the first time and carpet mm. row for the first time and there was mm. like all this push to try to get people to understand why carpet pythons were so cool and you know it worked also also, you had the legislation coming in for BOA, yeah. retic, berm. So yeah. people were looking for other things. So, yeah, it that that does happen. And I'm going to take this time now to say that rough scale pythons are really not cool. No <laughs> one should buy them. They yeah, really I, suck. Well, I mean, drop. that's yeah. a perfect that's a perfect uh, that that to me is the, the pinnacle of the of this example. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, if you were to talk to me and Owen back in 2009, the idea of even just seeing a rough scale python <laughs> would have been a dream. That would have been a pipe dream. And Dude. here we are. You know, I, I caught the female yawning today. Yeah. Oh, shit. I'm just like, damn. <laughs> 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 I'm like, oh, you're so pretty. Oh, look at those teeth. Right. Like, you know, oh. And now, you know, Owen could breed them next season. So, I Dude. mean, so you see how these, and, and the thing of it is, is that like, Back in oh. 2009, you probably would have had people that would have gave their left arm to have to get a pair of these, you know. Um, and now, and there, were, and there were a ton at Tinley Park. You remember the first time we saw one at Tinley Park? It was over two grand. Yeah, <laughs> and and the the price still will come holding down. strong. They're holding strong at about fifteen, which I'm shocked about. Yeah, and I think it's because it's one of those species, and and I mean, let's be honest, that it's a freaking mm-hmm. cool ass species. So it's once so you sort cool. of like, once you sort of, it's one of those ones like when you sort of have it in your hand, and then you're like, okay, I get it. But what's if gonna? I, ha- if I put Marius in people's hands and they don't freak out, I want to like take him and just smack them across the face and be like, <laughs> try again. Right. Like you know, it's like no, no, no. appreciate what this is. Right, like- and. You know, it's it works the same thing. Like even if you look at things like ball python morphs or anything like that, you know, it's like look at what Justin Kabilka is doing with, uh, you know, uh, the clown uh, mm-hmm. gene, you know, or the red stripe that just sort of went away for a little while and nobody cared about it. And then all of a sudden he brings out this magma ball python and everybody's like, oh, my God, that's the coolest thing ever. Now, everybody wants, you know, um, that uh, that gene because they want to be able to reproduce what he's reproduced you know so you have to think about uh, to me i always want to be at the head the leader the 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 cutting edge that kind of thing in whatever project that i'm working with rather than being the follower that's just trying to keep up because let's face it you're never going to be able to keep up no with with people and you know you just you can't (laughs) you just you just can't and, and people need to understand one essential thing if it is for sale, the reason it is for sale is because the breeder has 
the next eight steps ahead of that growing up in their collection. Like a perfect example Most is smart breeders, <laughs> intelligent ones. Yes. yes. <laughs> a good example is the pied Burmese Python. Mm-hmm. It's $25,000 a baby right now. And those hit a couple months back. People started seeing pied berms for sale for $25,000 and people were going nuts. People were buying them, doing all the other stuff. And immediately people were like, I'm going to breed it to an albino and I'm going to get albino pieds. Wouldn't you know what I saw on Facebook last week? An albino pied Burmese? From the same people who originally debuted the pied Burmese python, here are albino pied Burmese pythons. So the only reason you got step one is because they already had step three, four, and five. Yeah, that's that's kind of, I mean, we could probably hit on that in another show all by itself. We man- could. Managing a project. Managing a project. But yeah. that's my thing is that if you aren't going to spend the thousands and thousands of dollars per animal to be on the cutting edge of a morph, which, again, it's not the cutting edge. It is the edge that you're allowed to stand on. By the big breeders. You understand that. Yeah. Like, that's where you are. Um, you're getting a hypo tiger because they've already made hypo tigers. Duh. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, and also the hypo tigers they kept back, they kept them back. And that, that's why they allow, that's why they sell proven breeders because their kids have replaced them. But unless you're going to be that, the other thing you can be is refining a morph is you're not the first one to it, but you're going to make it better. You're going to make it pop. You're going to stick with it. You're going to breed it to the right animals that really bring out that animal. So what comes in mind is uh, Jason Bale and Reds. Yeah. You know, red red carpets, the longest time would gray out as they got older. Mm-hmm. And nobody really did the work except for Jason, who stuck with it and started breeding the MBB stuff to other stuff to, to, to really picking through and finding the red, the babies that held onto the red as long as possible and breeding them. And now those things glow. And that's just how it goes. If you can't be the first person to scene to the scene, make it better. Right. Yeah, I would agree. You know, um, another poop, piece of advice that I would give because most, let's face it, most breeding projects for the most part are centered around morphs, you know, but um, um, what I would say is, is that, you know, if you're going to get a morph, especially if it's a recessive, Mm. get a visual male. Yes. Um, Fork, fork out the extra bucks, you know, save up or, or wait until you can you know, if you buy some het females, you know, wait the next season and you could get a visual male probably for the mm-hmm. same price that you would have got a het the season before. You know, um, there was a while you had a pro you had multiple projects. I did that so many times and I just it was I, ridiculous. I, I wasted so much money. Well, just and, doing and we that. had that we had that thing where I came over the one time. And I'm like, what are these? Like, these are my het genetic stripe bur- bread lie. I'm like, cool. Next drawer, what are these? These are my genetic stripe bread lie. Why do you have these? I huh. don't know. I'm like, you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's like, and that's the problem is that if you could also, I like the idea of getting the visual male because if you got a visual male, you can breed it to a het female to go after the morph. But then, you know, you can go a different route and breed it to something else just to make hets of your own. Which is great to diversify. Like, say I had a visual male granite. 
Mm-hmm. And I had one female that was a het granite. Mm-hmm. The next female would have been a female straight from the farm, no blood relation to that male. Why? Because now I'm making het granites that can go out there and help keep the bloodline diverse. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Hundred percent. Yep. Probably the thing that more so is this is the, and, and all of this is important, but the other part of it is is that when you go to sell those snakes, and if you're breeding a het to a het, you're gonna have posset babies. No. It can be difficult to oh sell. Oh my god, they're and, mind numbing. I accidentally did poshets and I hate it. Yeah, it's I just it. it's you know, people people want hets. They don't want yes. it's a, it, you know at least at least in the carpet python world. I mean, when you no, look back any in the, the world, yeah, I, any I, world. I now that I'm saying that out loud, I kind of like gonna retract that with my next statement. That? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> is that you know if you look at back in the day when animals like you know let's take an albino ball python back in mm-hmm. the day when that was first coming out or a pied or whatever whatever you want to look at, um, but like this basic gene. Um, people would pay, you know, crazy amount of money, 10 grand for a pair of hats, you know? Um, so what people would do is because they were so excited, you know, the visual was, wasn't even available or you, you know, Mm -hmm. you had to be in the upper echelons of that, you know, uh, uh, know that breeder pretty close for him to even release that because you want to be sure you don't want somebody that you're going to sell a project to that's going to you know tank it in the next year so yeah. you have to be careful like who you're releasing that project to um and and you know because they could really screw it up for you if you're not smart about you know they really could managing you know that. They they start Drop selling them the for prices. sixty bucks a pop. Yeah, they exactly. Bomb it. Yeah. Right, exactly. And that I, I haven't really seen that happen too much in the carpet python world, but it has. You know, it has happened in the ball python world. So what what they would do is is that you know the people that would get you know those pair of hats for say ten grand, and then they would go and breed them. Then they would have these possets that they could sell for two grand. You know, and it's like. All right, well, you're just you're basically you're rolling the dice in this one. You know, it's like, okay, maybe I'll get it. Maybe I'll, you know, and I won't have to pay that, you know, 25 grand for the visual and I'll be able to produce my own visual and then turn around and be able to make my own hats and my own visuals eventually. Um, so you have to think yeah. about that, you know, and that, that the pos hats and carpets for whatever reason, like I guess maybe because you know, a lot of the jeans nowadays really aren't that expensive. You know, you're right. not you're not talking like you know major bucks, but I would definitely recommend at this point if you're going to get into a recessive project, just wait and get the visual. In my well, opinion, and, and also it's like people don't want to deal with a poset because it's a it's a possibility. In my opinion, with something being a poshet, it really only adds maybe twenty five dollars extra to the price. Yeah, I mean, because it 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 is. I can't guarantee it, and I hate that. That's why I had to revamp all my exantic projects because I thought I had visual exantics or yeah. homozygous exantics. I do not. I have het exantics. Right. And it drives me nuts. Right. So now I'm going to literally breed my exantics to figure it out. And part of me doesn't even want to deal with the hets. Like, you know, that might be something that I might look into wholesaling and stuff like that. And I think what happened a lot. And then, you know, going back to ball pythons, but I think what happened a lot with those in particular is that you would see them wholesale out these normals that were mm-hmm. had this or pos had that. 
and hmm. you know people would buy them at a pet shop and then breed them together and then all of a sudden you would have these crazy well, morphs that would pop out you know and it's just because they didn't the want to deal rumor. with it right? oh my god this is like people wonder why ball python people got such a bad rap it's like because number one they would go all over these tough these these crates of animals one by one picking all these wild caught ball pythons looking for funky scales to be a dinker project and very few times that worked out but sometimes it did also people would just buy up animals at shows normals being like i'm gonna take them home i'm gonna breed them because sometimes people like to just sell the heads more often than not, they'd be coming around a couple months later with a tub full of a bunch of baby normals. <laughs> it's, <just> right. like, <laughs> it's it's like it, 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 it's, everybody tried to find an angle and everybody tried to find the cheapest way to get to the hottest project. And sometimes you got insanely lucky, but those odds are ridiculous. You got to think about that. It's like, come on, man you probably have a better shot of getting hit by lightning. Like, you know, it's, but some people got him and some people did that, but some people were adamant about that. But, Oh yeah. You know, nowadays there are enough breeders out there producing enough animals, doing enough things that you really don't even need to mess around with possets anymore. It's almost like this is a fun fact about this animal. Yeah. It's like, Oh yeah. Fun fact. It's mother was a tiger carpet. So you know what? It might throw stripes. Right. Cool. Fun fact. Father was a head exanic, so it might be an exanic. Right. Like, you know, it's like that. Yeah. And uh, I think, you know, I would never mislead the no. buyer, but I think I would agree with what Owen's saying is that, you know, it's just like an added bonus. You know, I mm-hmm. just, I sent a um, uh, a granite zebra to uh, Billy Hunt uh, yep. with Matt at Tinley Park. I think there's a strong possibility that that's a caramel granite zebra, but I can't, I I can't guarantee that. And, you know, I told Billy that I was like, and he even messaged me and, you know, he said the same thing. He's like, you know, is this, could this be a caramel? And I was like, yeah, like I said, Mm -hmm. it could be a caramel, but (laughs) I'm not going to say it is, but I think there's a good chance that, you know, that is a caramel and, Hopefully it grows up to be an awesome, awesome animal hey, for you. If it does, congrats to you. You know, more yeah, power it's a to bonus. You, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah dude, it's a bonus. I'd rather do that than anything else. So I, I am really much more about the it's pos head, but my prices are based. Yeah, it would be I, I try to be. Yeah, I'd be. I'm below a head. Right. If anything, I look at them and I'm like, that's a cool carpet python, and then I put the price up. Right. So. You know, so yeah, so that's kind of like some things you want to think about, um, you know, before uh, you you start a breeding project, in my opinion. And then, you know, the other thing that I just want to throw out there for people to think about is like, what are the things you're going to need before you start breeding? Because I kind of did this backwards rather mm. than be have it together, like. I, I guess I didn't think about it. Maybe, you know, I didn't necessarily have somebody watching every move that I did that said, you know, what are you doing? A lot of times it'd be either Owen or Nick or somebody like yeah. that that would be like, dude, what, is, what the hell's wrong with you? <laughs> you, didn't, you don't have baby tubs ready? Like, yeah. Uh, um, no. Uh, what? <laughs> like, it, duh. Also, also, the universe will fuck you every way it can. Yes. I'm like, ah, oh, I got one more clutch in the incubator. 
It's a 10 egg clutch, and I got 10 baby bins ready. I am ready to last egg twins. Motherfuck. Like, are you serious? Yes. It's like, yeah. Yeah. That is that is what will happen. Um, that is how it does. Like, you, you will, if you think you're good on baby bins, something will happen that will make you not good on baby bins. If you're, if you don't feel the need to plug in your incubator, or even have an incubator because you're going to do all maternal incubation, you will have a mother that will leave her eggs. Yes. And it will be the mother of the most expensive possible first-time breedings in the country. Been there. So <laughs> <laughs> Happened. Yeah. So, you know, that's that's what you got to do. It's like whatever you plan for, there will be a monkey wrench. So overplan, you know. Yeah, so I would say that you know, it's funny um, – I think it was a while back. I think it was the mm-hmm. first time that Joe and Melissa came to see your collection. Mm-hmm. You were talking about, you know, I guess you guys must have been talking about what you're breeding this upcoming season. All right. And they counted my bins. Right. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And they were like, um, you're like, you know, I'm going to pro- probably could be this, could be this, could be this, blah, blah, blah. And then they're like, um, where are you going to put all them? You're like, I'm uh, working on that, whatever. <laughs> but uh, Don't worry. Don't don't worry. I never get all of them. Yeah. All right? I never get all of them. You say Most that. I came to was two years ago. <laughs> two years ago, I had a really good year. And I was just like, all right, stop now. Like, you know, it was, we were this close to maternal incubation due to necessity. Yes. But yes. also, you know, I, like right now I have babies from 18 and I have... The 19 babies are here, and I had one clutch of eight Coastals, and I got four just normal Coastals. The rest are Jags. Right. In a pinch, do I really need to sell $60 Coastals? No. Like, I could, like, none of them are, none of them are knock your socks off Coastals. Maybe you drop them off at a table. Right. Like, if I needed to, I could make space. Right. If I needed to, I could be like, hey, Eric, I picked your holdback breadlock for you. Here's a box. And you'd right. be like, all right. Like, you know, like, sure. Okay. Like, you know, I also have another rack of about, uh, four, I have another 40 baby rack in my garage because I don't have room for it. Like, I could just stick that in a corner of the snake room. It'd be awkward. It'd be stupid. I'd be moving around it. But you know what? It'll work. Um, you can figure stuff out. Yeah, you I really think it's. Can. I think it's one of the things that you have to think about is like, say you're going to do, I don't know, say you're going to do four coastal carpet clutches and one jungle carpet clutch. So you're looking at an average of about 15, you know, high end would be 20. I would assume every single female is going to give you 20. Yes. You should do. Right. So assume on the high end. Right. So if you're going to, yeah, exactly. And you know, if, if it's lower then you're, you're great. But like if it's higher and you don't have the space, then you're kind of, you're kind of screwed. So kind of screwed. You're going to have to make a decision and either sell off a couple of babies or cause I wouldn't even want to do double babies in a bin no. because then you run the risk of cannibalism and stuff like that. But, um, the other thing you could do, and what I've seen is that if you have like a 32 quart rack, is um, put the five quart tubs with lids in the 32 quart bin. Yep, I've which seen that. Yeah. Now you're getting, now you're starting to get funky, and you're not going to be evenly heated and stuff like that. So it's plan accordingly and do, like you said, stay on the side of 20, because then it's always better to overshoot and have empty bins that just sit there than to undershoot and be fucked. Yeah. So, so if you're going to have four clutches, 20 eggs a shot, 
you know, then you're looking at, you know, hundred pins. Uh, yeah, exactly. You know, so mm. you, you want to have at least what well, would be, yeah, you, you want to have around that thing. So you, you're going to have to figure out like, you know, what kind of, what kind of rack are you going to use? Are you going to use, mm-hmm. are you going to use baby tubs? Are you going to use ones that are on heat? Are you going to use ones that are in the ambient or, you know, all these things you have to are think gonna- about like wh- how you're going to do it. Yeah, are you going to yeah. build a rack, which sure. is like what Nick does, where you just stack up the tubs and have heat in the back? Right. Or are you actually going to get a drawer system? Um, what are you going to use to monitor that cage? What kind of stat? Herb yeah. stat? Exactly. Branco? Yeah. And, yeah, how are you going to set the babies up? You're going to mm-hmm. need water bowls. You're going to need, yep. you know, perching. You're going to need hides. I mean, hides. you can... You can you can use uh, you know I, I personally like using paper towel rolls for hides for baby carpets just simply I have because these little they plastic can... square things that I use constantly. Yeah, so, yeah. So I mean, there's there's or you can buy them from some somewhere like mm-hmm. Reptile Basics. I mean, you know, you can do whatever. Then you have like perches where you could, um, you go to, um, uh, you know, you could use. That coat hangers. Stuff. You could use right. that garden stuff that people use, um, where they you know buy a roll and they cut. You like, could get those printed ones that uh, fit in the tub and yeah, have the water dish. Yeah, that David Brahms does, especially yeah. 3D creations. Um, but yeah, I mean, you got a whole bunch of different ways that you can go. Um, then you need an incubator, you know, well, you know, and you're going to need a thermostat for the incubator. So well, now, how what are you going to do for the incubator? Are you going to go and buy one? From one of the cage manufacturers, are you going to go get one that was originally designed for chicken eggs? Are you going to go and build one out of an old refrigerator? Yeah, I mean, to me, just my opinion, if you're going to go, it's funny how reptile people work. You know, it's like totally opposite of like, you know, fish people where (laughs) fish people will pay. Million twenty twenty dollars for <laughs> for the animal and yeah exactly millions for the setup whereas reptile right. people will pay millions for the for the animal and twenty dollars for the setup. lives in a lives yeah. in a bin that yeah. I got at Lowe's on my floor yeah, yeah. and it's, it's not that there's anything wrong with that per se you know I'm not here to judge but you know when you invest in caging correct you know. Even if it take and you shouldn't don't be dumb and buy thirty thousand dollars worth of cages. Buy a cage. And then when it comes time to get another animal, buy another cage from the same manufacturer. Right. And after a certain amount of time you will realize that you've somehow grown a room. Right. Okay. But you need to understand is that each one of those little babies is now another animal that is an addition to your collection. Right. You're gonna have to take care of it. And if it moves up from that five-quart tub, do you have 15s? Do you have 32s? Do you have 41s? If you're not careful, you can have a four-year-old animal that you produce that is still for sale. Yeah. You know, you have to take care of that thing. Now, sometimes you breed it, and then you take it to the show, and it's a proven breeding three-year-old male. Now it sells. Okay, cool. Right. But how much money have you put into that animal to get it there? Right. You have to be ready for that, too. So now as far as your incubator, what, what was your first incubator? Coke fridge. Cool. Still mine, mine. too. And I love it. <laughs> yeah, still the same. So mine was the – actually, my first incubator was the Styrofoam Hovabator. And I hatched carpets in that. 
Wait, let me back up for a second. My okay. first incubator was actually your incubator. <laughs> yes, it was. Which was my third incubator. So yeah. your first incubator was my third incubator. So my first incubator was a styrofoam chicken hovabator with a little dial, like, you know, the little wafer thingy, hatched carpet pythons in that. So it can be done. The second one I got was a GOF chicken incubator where the drawers that they used to turn the eggs had been removed, and I just had flat pieces of wood, and then the carpet eggs were in bins in that. And that's where I hatched my first two years of carpet pythons. After that, I got the Coke fridge, which I gutted and has been my incubator ever since. Yeah, and they're pretty easy to, uh, you know, you can, I mean, lucky for me, I work at a uh, grocery store, so I have access to these things all the time. I actually have one sitting in my office right now that uh, Just waiting. I'm uh, waiting to uh, figure out how to get to my house and uh, convert it to incubator number a, two. I have a mini fridge, a Coke, I have a Coke mini fridge in my garage that I gutted. It needs a handle, but it's just been sitting there. I haven't put heat in it. I haven't done anything because I don't need to. I've never gotten to the point where I'm like, oh, crap, I need another incubator. I'm actually going to – I don't know. Like, how do you sell it? Like, how do you get rid of gutted refrigerator? Like, I got to find a reptile person who's like, I really want to build an incubator, and I live in Pennsylvania. <laughs> this is me calling out to that person. Please yes. come take this. <laughs> like, I won't even charge you. Just get this thing out of my house. Get it out, yeah. Because now I had, I had a wine chiller that I actually used for its intended purpose. Wine, mm. um, it broke. So now I'm like, crap. Well, I could always turn it into an incubator. <laughs> it's like, it's like, <laughs> no, damn it! Right. Like, so, but yeah, I mean, the Coke fridges are awesome. I love it because you have a glass door, which is cool because you can peek in. Right. Uh, if you do it correctly, and you leave all the electrical components of the refrigerator intact, you can have a fan that turns on. When the lights and the heat of the thing turns on, which is awesome because now you get air circulation. If you do it correctly, it's got an all-metal inside with shelves already that can be moved up and down depending on how many eggs or bins you have in there. Mm -hmm. Also cool. Uh, it can um, – it seals properly and holds heat. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Yep. So – uh, and I actually went a step further with mine is after I gutted all the compressor and the other systems and stuff like that out of it, I put server batteries into the bottom to run. If it ever loses power, it runs off of that. Nice. Yeah, but those ser the server batteries broke, so I need to get those fixed. But um, it's that was another added part to it. So, right. But I've had that thing forever, and it's awesome. i got to clean it and real good. You know, like Hotbox Incubators, that's a company that comes yeah. to mind. Animal Plastics Incubators, yep. they have it as well. I, I I, mean, you know, they're very nice, um, What very what nicely made. What you need to understand is that carpet python eggs are, not, are very hard to kill if they're fertile. Um, they just need heat and time. Yeah. And depending on how much heat depends on how much time. So, remember, I hatched a clutch in an unplugged incubator. Yeah. And it took like 80 days. Like it took it took longer. <laughs> it took much longer. Right. Um, and they came out small and they were a bitch to get eating. But they're fine now. I mean, I have to <laughs> still. Right. Um, but it's like that's just the way it is. So um, I, a norm, the big breeders, they have rooms where you just walk into like a walk-in closet that they've just run a bunch of heat in. And that's their incubator. 
Yeah, I think um, uh, guys like Ryan Young, he does that. Yeah, I mean, like you look at Bob Clark shit. He had the fridges that like you have at the supermarket, where like it's like racks of things. He had, in there. yeah, he had like yeah, the fridge that installed. Like if yeah. you go into a Wawa or Seven yeah. Eleven or some kind of yeah. convenience store, you know the the the. The wall of drinks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, that's what, he what has that's what Bob incubator. Clark uses. Like yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's what Bob Clark loses uses an incubator. It's a drink wall of fridges. Like right. that's yeah. And you know, I mean like incubators can be a lot of things. So you got to find out what's available for you and what works for you. If you can get a refrigerator, awesome. I would say that if you're going to get a refrigerator and can have it professionally drained of Freon, do that. Do not do what I did, and that's where like. Swimmer goggles, a face shield, um, long sleeve shirt, <laughs> jeans, and gloves, and puncture the Freon and run. Yeah. Like that, you shouldn't do that. The it, early 2000s were crazy times. <laughs> you courageous bastard, you. Yeah. Like, you know, it's, but it, I mean, I was in my mom's backyard with this thing, and I, I, didn't know, I had no idea what I was doing. I, I was just dismantling. I was just ripping things out. I'm like, looks important, pull. Like, you know, it's. Yeah. And that's just, it just happened to work that way. And yeah, I mean, you could even leave that stuff in and just not run it, you know, but it's heavy. It is. Yeah, yeah, it is. And, and I like the idea of my electric still works. So I have the fridge itself plugged into the Ranko that's been running my, uh, incubator for years. And when the, Ranko turns on, the fan turns on, so there's air circulation. Right. And I like that. There used to be a light, too, but I have to get a new light um, working. But it's, it, I like it. I really do. And, um, you know, I don't ever put probes in my egg boxes okay. and stuff like that. And yeah. I have holes in my egg boxes, but not a lot. Right. There's a ton of airflow going through the thing. And it, it, it holds heat very well, not even being in the snake room. It used to be, but now it's off to the side. Right. It it does great in there. I've had several clutches in there. Right. Yeah. In this house. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that, that, that's the other, the last thing that I'm going to hit on is like what you got to think about before is food. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is something that, you know, I, I would even admit myself like, you know, um, that, you're looking at with what we're saying four clutches, you know, 20 eggs a clutch. You're looking mm-hmm. at about, you know, so let's say you're going to feed hoppers. Um, and let's say you're going to be conservative, you know, conservative in that. And you're going to feed like I do, like every two weeks, right? Mm-hmm. You're looking at a hundred hoppers every, every two, two weeks. weeks right? Yep. And they come in bags of like 50. Maybe. Right. Or you could get them in a hundred, but still, I mean, yeah, you're more. looking at yeah. killing that bag Yep. every two weeks. So, yep. and the thing of it is, is that most snakes, like most pythons are hatching out all around the same time and they're mm-hmm. going to be trying to eat all around the same time. Just like, mm-hmm. you know, you can't find medium rats anywhere. Oh because... my fucking God. <laughs> medium rats in the springtime are, are, are oh my God. Right. It's like. My suggestion, if you, if you have snakes that eat medium rats, you need to be buying about two, three bags a show during the wintertime. Yeah. Yeah. And you just stockpile that stock shit. Stock it up. Yeah. 
You you have to. The problem I ran into is I had a bunch of grow ups and I'm like, I'm stockpiling. Oh, crap. They're eating all the mediums. (laughs) Yeah. So So. you should be buying at least three to four bags of mediums every winter show. Otherwise, come springtime when everyone wakes up and you want to get everybody that smaller meal, not their normal one. And the medium rat's perfect. Now, you ain't going to find any because all the ball pythons are awake. But it's. It's something you need to think about, especially if you feed live. Like, if you're the kind of guy that breeds his own rodents, you might have to now produce 100 hoppers every two weeks. Right. Yeah, it can get, it can get crazy. So, yeah. So that's, that's, you know, that's sort of what you have to think about ultimately when it comes to if you want to do a breeding project. And I know that sounds like, you know, it's a lot of work or it's a lot of things to think about, but you have to be responsible. I mean, you're going to produce these babies, you know, and, and what happens a lot of times, and I haven't really seen it so much with carpets per se. Um, but you'll have somebody that'll breed a bunch of these things and they don't realize what they're getting into. And then they just drop these things and drop the prices and, you know, blah, 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 blah. That, or you take them to, do you take them to a, a, a flipper or a dealer? And I'm telling you right now, um, babies before they eat are five dollars each. Right. Babies after they eat are ten dollars each. Right. If they got a morph, it's twenty dollars. Right. So you know, nice is the way it is. Now he buys it from you for twenty. It's on his table for eighty. Right. That's how it works. Yeah. And and if that's the way you want to go, then that's cool. But you know, it's not that that doing that is is bad. But no, but you need to prepare for that. Like you know, you're thinking, I'm gonna make. Where this much off of this clutch. Okay. Then you need to make sure you're prepared for to offer the animals for this price. Right. If if you're gonna, you need to make more animals or you need to have the right kinds or you need to do this, that, and the other thing. Like my thing is is that if I can take a couple animals to the wholesalers and buy enough food to run through summer, it's a good good year. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um so now we're going to get into the actual breeding of the animals. And for me, well, you know. Yeah, it's when a mommy snake and a daddy <laughs> snake love each other very much. <laughs> um, for me, that kind of starts around June or July is yes. when I sort of, because I cycle feed. And you do. I, you have to. I focus on the females. Um, and I just put the food. So. My normal females, you know, in the outside of the breeding season, probably are getting a medium rat maybe once a month, maybe every three weeks, somewhere in that. Mm-hmm. It's not really a time frame per se. Who knows? Every once in a while, they'll maybe get every two weeks. But what I do is as I get into, you know, say June, I'll start to really focus on making sure that it's a more consistent feeding schedule. So I might go every two weeks. And then in July, I'm still going every two weeks. And then, you know, come, um, you know, August and September, what I'll do is I'll, I'll, I'll drop down to, say, a smaller, like the next size down, say a small rat, and then I'll start feeding every week, you know. I just want that female to, I want that trigger to be, okay, there's a lot of food around, um, it's good to breed, and not to mention the fact that breeding is very taxing 
on the female snake. So mm-hmm. I want to make sure that she has plenty of reserves to know that she can produce, you know, a viable clutch. So that's that's what's worked for me. I think for, we should I should back up. There's no recipe. We're not baking a cake. No. <laughs> you know, these things are living beings. They, you know, they are individuals. Sometimes what things work, you know, with the cup, with the rest of your collection, you always have one hold down. I have plenty of examples of I that. I mean, like, it's like, let's think about your exanic, your exanthic female. Correct. That for eons, <laughs> would you be like, well, you just like, and it just kind of clicks. Like, it's what happens. I've had numerous females were didn't go, didn't go, didn't go, didn't go. Holy crap. It went. Yeah. And then after that, it goes every year like that. This there, this could be your best bet, but you need to figure out what works best for you. And the way you figure that out is not messaging breeders one by one and being like, what do you do? There is a ton of literature out there. You can Google carpet python breeding and they'll pull up that old reptiles magazine where Will Leary talked about breeding. Right. You can pull up Anthony Campanetto's how he used to breed. We've talked about it on the show a million freaking times. Yes. You can figure this stuff out and you need to still know what works best for you. If you have a breeder that lives somewhat locally, talk to them. That's the person you want to talk to. That's the one you want to talk to because what works for me might not work for someone in Texas, might not work for someone in California. Yes. You need to figure out what works best for you. Find that formula and then stick to it. I think year after year after year. Yes. That's the other thing. Like a lot of people will now, like when you're trying to breed, um, you know, you may go down one path and it's not working. So then you kind of change it, you know, uh, or, right. or you have a season and you're not successful. Like the first time I tried to breed carpets was 2011. Right. And when I tried to breed in, or maybe it was 2010, 2010. And I thought for sure I was going to, you know, I, Hey, you know, this is what we're going to do, but I didn't do any of that. I just kind of like, up, oh, it's going to get cold. I'm going to put them together. They're going to breed, produce eggs, and there you go. But that didn't happen. So I had to take a step back, kind of what, like Owen was saying, I researched, I talked to people, I talked to people that were local, I tried to pick their brains, exactly what was going on, you know, and come 2012, I finally had sort of my system start to develop in, you know, how I was going to approach this. Right. what I was going to do. And slowly over the year, like back in 2012, I didn't cycle feed. But, mm-hmm. you know, as I started to see like, okay, you know, the, these are the traits. So I, I, I am in the belief that, say, there's multiple different triggers that trigger these animals to breed. You don't have to hit on every trigger. You just have to hit on there. There's a certain magic number, you know, and I'm just throwing these numbers out there. These are not real, but let's just say that there's five things that, you know, can get a female to breed this particular female to breed. Correct. Five things. And right. it might be five different things than this other female. And that female might only need three. Correct. Like it's right. You may not have to drop the temps. You may not have to have a light cycle. You may not have to cycle feed. You may not. But what what people see, this is where things get confusing because the people that say, oh, I never drop my temps. Right. And you're let's I'm just going to speak for people here on the East Coast. I don't care 
where you live. If you're here on the East Coast, your temperatures drop in your room, even if you don't think they do. They do. It's cold outside. Your temperature of your house drops. Even if you think like, oh, no, at night. The temperature of your house drops. So also, where where do you keep the snakes most of the time if you live in the East Coast? Correct. Basement. Basement. Dirt. Right. Garage. Right. Like you know, this isn't this isn't like unless you keep them in your living room. In which case, what are you doing? Like you know, it's right. It, 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 exactly. Things happen. Things that affect these animals. Like I am pushing more for that. My Timors and my olives are going to have access to sunlight this winter. Right. Because of the window. Okay. And I want them to have access to sunlight because I want them to see that, hey, the sun goes away. Right. Like, I'm, I want them to see that. Like, I want to do that. And I was hoping to have lights installed before winter because I was going to fuck with them even more there. Right. <laughs> like, I was going to do that. But um, it, 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 there are several triggers. And what I would say is that you should stick to your plan, and small alterations are fine. Where it's like, I'm going to cycle feed next summer. Okay. I'm going to introduce earlier. All right. But don't drastically change it. Don't sit there and be like, well, I got some good clutches, but I also got one slug clutch. I'm going to totally redo it different next year. Right. Because then you're just going to get a bunch of slugs or some sicknesses or no breeding at all. Right. So if you get eggs, you've done something right. Stick to it because... The more exposure the animals have to how you do things, the better it's going to be. Like the first season for a female and a male usually isn't their best season. Second, third, fourth, when they get into the rhythm, when they know what's going on. Yeah, it's, um, it's you know, so another reason why it takes so long for my animals to reach maturity, especially the ones that I produce, is because I run those babies through the winter temp drops the feeding mm-hmm. all that stuff because you know it was something that when we talked to ryan young um a long time ago and we were talking about breeding white lips the thing that that stuck out to me with that is that just it's all about consistency yeah. then and, and that's why i was saying earlier with the five triggers maybe only three of them you need but if you're consistent with those three Sometimes you don't even like the females will start to, to, to show signs of, okay, it's breeding time without you even doing anything because they know that, okay, like you'll see, I don't know, like for me, my females in the summertime have a feeding response like no other. Right now, I mean, right they now, are right now is death. Yes, like it is. They want to kill everything that comes anywhere that near room, you walk in that room, they all get in a hunting position. Like, they know. Yes. They know winter's coming. Right. And even if they are the most well-fed females with the biggest bellies, they're trying to get as much food in them as possible because they know it's coming. Right. So that's that's what I would say. Just be consistent. Figure out what your game plan is going to be. You know, mm-hmm. where you're located. Figure out somebody that's local to you. Try to pick their brain. Um, but for the most part, you can kind of apply this. To, to, to wherever you're at, but the, the thinking is is that you have – so like for me, I sort of like focus what I do around the temperature that's outside. I yeah. use that to my advantage. Here in the East Coast, we're very lucky. We have nice humidity. We have you know uh, temperatures that drop low enough where I find it's much easier to keep the room uh, on the warmer side 
rather than to drop it. You know, like when you talk yeah. to people in Florida, you know, they're opening windows, they're, they're doing all these things. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're putting they air conditioners on. To make it cool, yeah. Correct. All we have to do is somehow make it not freezing. Like if it gets Just turn 30, the heat off. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Like uh, I'm actually going to start doing it where I'm actually probably going to shut down the room at nighttime. Because I have these ambient, like I have the heaters all throughout the room. I'm going to turn them off because the each individual case has its own heater. And I want to make sure that the snakes get to a certain temperature. And the best way to do that is to kill all heat in the room except for the heat that is controlled by the computer that I told to drop to a certain temp. Right. Well, so, put a pin in that because I'm going to come back to that in, the, okay. in, a, in a minute. Um, but I just wanted to... Uh, you know, finish the thought of like the timing of it. Right. So Mm -hmm. for the longest time, and I think Owen was at the same is that I would start to drop temps at Halloween. Yes. They would starve throughout all of October, which means no food. And then you start dropping tents temps as of November 1st. And then you should be in the thick of winter by December 1st. Right. Then they're down in winter for all of December. And then January, you slowly start taking them all up, and then they're at the top back where they should be by February 14th, and that's when you do introductions. That's the old way. Right. Welcome to global warming. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so we push it ahead a month. Yeah. uh, Yeah. Um, I fed, I'm going to feed probably this weekend, and I'm going to probably try to feed one more time before we go to Australia. And then I figured Australia is going to be my cutoff. So I'm going to empty the fridge before freezer before we go. Everybody's going to eat. Um, Francis is going to come over and clean, which they're going to be very mad and very dirty. Right. So we'll see if Francis lives. <laughs> um, one of my team wars might kill him. Uh, but then when we get back, it's going to be November. And I'm going to put the starve in in November. And then come Thanksgiving is when I will start dropping temps. Now... Do you winter with or without? So, for me, yeah, I follow Mm -hmm. the same recipe, same thing. And this is an example of how you adapt, right? So, you you know, what was happening, uh, I remember the the one year that everybody on the East Coast had sort of a shitty season. And it was because it shot up to like 80 degrees... Christmas time. Was Christmas. It was short to Christmas. Yes. Yeah. It was it Kiss was it was so crazy. So it totally screwed up everything yep. that was going on. Because at that point we were at the coolest point that the carpets could be. And now we're in the position, the same position that you would be if you were in Florida, which totally t- threw the animals for, for a loop. Or a loop. Yeah. You know what I mean? Totally screwed them up. Um so that's when we decided, like, I know you did it or that same year, is that the following year, I just pushed it back to what Owen was saying. Like, where I would start to drop temps around November, now I don't start to drop temps around till December. Right. What because I- if you have a spike in December, mm-hmm. like, say, say it gets to 80 degrees someday in December, that's not going to affect you too much because then it drops right back down. Because in Pennsylvania, we still have cold weather up into February. Yes. So if you have to almost take a mulligan day and then continue drops after that, it's not going to hurt too bad. Right. Um, so, yeah, I, that's kind of what I do. Um, and, 
you know, I, I don't feed basically from, uh, Halloween until probably until I start warming them up in February or March, Mm -hmm. you know, um, they don't adults. Well, you know, so, so during that time I may feed the babies, you know, or the youngsters or the yearlings or whatever, I'm going to give them a meal or two throughout that time. But this feeding is very, very sparse. Like I'm not putting food to them really all that. And, And, you know, if I, and let me let me stop that. If I do see an animal that's starting to lose weight, it doesn't look right. It you know it. I I'll pull that out of the thing and then I'll, I'll give them a meal. Well, um, and also that's not a be all to end all. Like I've had males that did not do well in winter, pulled them, warmed them up, fed them a bunch, and then when spring time rolled around and everybody got warm, threw him in with the female and he bred. Yeah. Sometimes it's just whatever it works, but. Um, yeah. And the yeah. other weird thing with that is, is that, you know, I, I was having a situation and uh, I'm kind of jumping ahead a little bit, but I had yeah. a situation one year where I, I did everything according to what I usually do. And for whatever reason, the females weren't ovulating mm-hmm. and it was just like, it was really throwing me off. I was like, why am I not seeing ovulation? Um, and I, I can't remember who I got this from, but I heard somebody talking about that they put, I think it might have been ball python people, and they start to feed the female right around when she was going to ovulate. And I was like, huh, I wonder if that would work. So Mm -hmm. then I fed a very small meal, and man, it was like like I I flipped a switch. Yep. She just ovulated right after that. I had five females do that same thing that year. And I don't know what it was. I don't know, you know. I guess it's that same mindset that like, oh, food's here, so I'm going to do it. Maybe they needed that extra energy. I'm not really sure. But like if I see the females are kind of stalling out at some point, I will throw them a very, you know, a small, sometimes a small rat um, just to just to kickstart that. Uh, yeah, I usually I usually warm everybody up in, we'll say, March ish, like end of February, uh, early March is when everybody gets warmed up. And then I give everybody a smaller meal. So the adult females are getting medium to small rats, depending on their size. Right. And then the males are getting, um, small rats to, uh, weanlings. Mm -hmm. And then that's their first meals. And then they eat and then they're in with the girls. Yeah. If they're not already in with the girls anyway, because I asked you before, like, do you winter them together or not? Yes, I do. I put them I do together. Too. I put them as soon as I drop the temps and the temps are down, I start introductions. Now, right. I might not leave the male in there the whole time. You shouldn't. But because he gets used to her. Correct. And you want him to have the because you separate that first, like you separate them for that first feeding. You feed them. You put that male back in there. That's when he's all over her because he's eaten. And also that's a great indicator is like female eats. Male doesn't want to touch the food. Yeah, you'll doesn't, see. Doesn't give a shit. You'll see that a lot from people like, oh, my God, my carpet python hasn't eaten in months. I don't know what it is. is that's it a male? because his mind is on one thing and one thing only and you haven't given it to him. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So you will know when you're when. You'll know oh. when the females. So this is my. This is what I judge of when I'm going to put the the males with the females. Mm. So as soon as I come down at nighttime 
and yeah. I see them cruising. Like they are just cruising the cage. You just see them going that S just straight up the cage, just constantly. They're just looking, they smell those females. They're trying to find those females and they just cruise and cruise and cruise. As soon as that happens, that's when I pull them out and I put that, that male with that female. You know, whatever that would be, you know, and you'll see, I feel bad almost to a certain extent. They're like, they're just like, where's the girl? Where is she at? I know she's here. She's, oh yeah, I can smell her. Stick, <laughs> stick a, you know, have a proven breeder male sit out for a season. You will see one pissed off snake. Yes. He's like, well, I, they, I, they, I know she's right over there. And right. it's like, I know, but it not your year, buddy. It's like it, it and it, and it happens quickly you know you got to understand is that if you put them in there and the male immediately goes over the female starts spurring her or is kind of like walking around that's great if he immediately tries to escape it's because he's not ready and it's not he's not comfortable or he's too small right so yeah um, and there's also tons of tricks we can get into that a little bit about Oh, yeah. Trying to get the mail to do that. Um, so. I just wanted to say real quick, mm-hmm. you know, I think that um, that's something that people don't talk about a lot. But I think that El Nino affects uh, things oh, yeah. when it comes to breeding because you'll see some seasons where everyone seems to have a crappy season. And when I say crappy season, you know, they're breeders that produce large amounts of animals. Like you look at Nick. He's going to still produce carpet pythons. Regardless of whether he has a shitty year or not, it's just that his numbers are lower than what they would normally be. You know, so it's not like you're not going to see any carpets at all. You know, like oh my god, carpets! Nobody can breed carpets this season. No, it's not. No, like it's that. just less. You're just going to see you know? way less, and you're going to have like females that you know, you know, proven proven pairs. Like sometimes they won't go, and you're like you're you're scratching your head. I really think that it has to do with that whole El Nino thing. And you're probably correct. I mean, like, think about it this way. I've had the year I moved, I only had one clutch, and that was Trinity. Right. And Trinity's normally 32 eggs. Like, you could set a watch to her. Right. And she had, like, 10. This year, she had 32 eggs. Only eight were viable. So. Right. It's like, that's what happens. Sometimes with these mass things, you can mess them up. And the weather outside can affect them. The marometric pressure can affect them. Yes, that's, that's why. That's why we tell you if if the wet, if the weatherman is out there saying that there's going to be a snowstorm, a snowstorm, woohoo! <laughs> put them together. Like, yes. say you've started warming up, and say you start introductions, and they're like, "Hey, there's going to be a snowstorm in March." Fuck yes, because yes. now. I'm gonna get some breeding, yes. or there's gonna be a big thunderstorm, or there's gonna be something. Right. You know. It, it that's what you've got to rely on, and that's what you need. Um, and I would say, don't be shocked if you don't get locks. I've I've had animals who've locked up ten million times in a season, and not produce a single egg. But I've had animals where I never saw the lock, and all of a sudden the females inverted, and I'm like, oh, well, you can get out of here now, I guess. I, I you know, right. it's also don't pull early. You know, I, I've pulled males thinking that she's gravid, but that was the ovulation swell, which is late. Yeah, I don't pull them until I know for a fact that she ovulated. Otherwise, that male stays She has with to be them. upside down. Yeah. She has to be upside down or she's on the hot spot and he's tucked behind the water bowl on the other side of the cage. Yeah. yeah. Then it's like, all right, buddy. Clearly, clearly she does not want you in here. Right. So, 
and that's just how it goes. It's what you have to do. Right. Because um, I think a lot of times where people have a bad season is because they did something. They they moved too quickly. They pulled the male too early. They didn't set the female up for success. They missed the ovulation swell. It's that's just how it goes. Yeah, yeah, it happens for sure. You know, the the next thing that I would talk about would be temps. You know, I think mm-hmm. that like, you know, the biggest misconception that I had about temps and and dropping temps is that. I would think that you would drop temps and then you drop them, which is more of the colubrid style, which Owen was talking about earlier. Whereas with with carpet pythons, you're dropping the temps at night and then you're allowing normal temperatures during the day. So let's put that into reality for here at EB Morelia. Okay. So basically what I do is I turn off all the heat. Everything, no hot spots, nothing, absolutely no heat in my room, period. That's through the night. Mm -hmm. And what will happen is it all kicks on in the morning time and they go up to regular temperatures just as I would keep them during the summertime. No different. You know, 82 degrees ambient, 85 degree hot spot. As long as they have access to heat up, carpets are pretty freaking tough, man. Yes. And they're exposed to some pretty cold temperatures in their environments. I mean, Scott sent us picture upon picture of carpet pythons in the wild, you know, and shot them with a temp gun. And, you know, they're out there looking for food. They're, you know what I mean? They're, some of them were on A. I mean, just like... They're pretty resilient, and as long as they can heat up, you don't. And and I think a lot of people run into like respiratory infections and all this stuff is because they never allow that heat up during the day. Yes, so, so they would dr- drop the temperatures during the day as well. So like if you would keep it at eighty two, they put the ambient at seventy five, and they give the hot spot at eighty two. That animal isn't isn't able to you know fully raise its body temperature. Um, to do the things it has to do. Um, so you know, you know, it's funny. Is I always used to um, when I first started breeding, I thought it was drop them and keep them there. Uh-huh. Um, and what I didn't realize is that at my mom's place, the room that I kept him in the basement, lost all power if you flipped the switch at the top of the stairs to half the room. Um, so what ended up happening is. Uh, I had all their heats set up to drop to a certain temperature that I thought they needed to drop to and to keep them there. So I thought it was probably around 60. Mm-hmm. Um, what ended up happening is every night I'd go upstairs and I'd flip that switch and I'd kill power to the room and they'd drop to whatever the hell the temp was. And then in the morning I'd turn the light, I'd flip the switch to turn the lights on so they'd have light down there right? and the temps would start rising again. So I inadvertently did it the right way by accident. <laughs> right. So it's it, it's one of those things where they need the heat up. That's why I'm going to pull the bread lie and I'm going to probably not do them in the same rack as the colubrids this year. I'm going to probably put them somewhere else or I'm going to try to do them in the same room. But like if I let the room, if I kill all the room heat, 
Um, try to see if I can get them down lower in the room. If not, I'm going to kick them out to the room with the Timors and the Olives because they, I'm going to drop down to probably about 50. Right. Yeah, it's, I don't know about you. I think carpet pythons are one of those weird ones. Well, I don't know if they're weird per se, but they're one of those species where you have to drop the temps. It's not like, you know, like green trees. You don't really have to manipulate their temps so much um, as, you know, they're breeding all year long. You see that, you know, uh, I think if you were able to do that with a carpet python, I would think that Papua and carpet pythons would be the one that you'd be able to do that with to where, you know, because they don't really need that much of a temp swing to, right. to get into the gear, the gear of things. Like you'll see them start to get together, say right at the beginning, like as soon as mm-hmm. it gets cold at night, like as soon as that first night you're dropping temps, you're just going to start to see action from your Papua and carpets. Um, you know, uh, it's, it's one of those things where they go first, you know, they're going to be the ones that go first. And I think a lot of times, you know, some of the problems that people have with those is that they sort of are, are, they miss the window because Mm -hmm. the window was early. Now you've sort of passed it. So, um, that's something that you have to think about. Um, I would say the, the, the absolute, well, the, the highest you should drop the temp to, like you, you can probably go a little lower than this, but the the number that seems to work for most people is seventy degrees at night. You know, yeah, that ambient of seventy. I would say I kind of go a little lower than that. I'd I do. go to like sixty five. I would even venture to say that at sometimes it's sixty degrees in there. You know. I usually try to drop them down low and I try to do it like week at a time. Right. Uh, and I usually try to keep them like one week at where they drop down to 65. Yes. And then they slowly build up, up after that. Like they'll, they'll spend a grand total of two weeks at 68, one on one end on the way down and one on the way up. So, um, that's just the way it goes, but they sh- I try to usually try to get them at one week at 65. Um, and one of those days during that week, they might go to low 60. But again, that's at nighttime. In daytime, they get it to about 82, 80. Like, let's say, like, because normally you got to do is you got to also, you got to drop the hot spots a little bit too. Like, say you do normally 84. You should try to lower it to about 82, 83. But... At night or during the day? During the day. See, I, I, I well, believe it. Well, here's the difference. Mm. I, I turn off all the heat, mm-hmm. so I want the and and the length of time is also important to in, in at least in my collection of how long that they have that heat. So, like you're during the summertime, they're going to have that heat twelve hours. Right. During the winter time, it's whatever the outside is. So as soon as it so as soon as the sun goes down, that's when I have it set that those, you know, those thermostats will start to you can there's a setting in there where you can start to right. ramp tell, down the tell temp. It to ramp it down, yeah. So I'll ramp it down at an hour um after the sun goes down. And then it'll go through the night and probably, you know, when the sun comes up, 
which would probably be what would you say like seven o'clock in the morning probably yeah six, like that, yeah. six thirty something like that yeah. it'll start to ramp back up and then so basically yeah. they have that that it's now a, a smaller window because here in the east coast you know it gets dark what four thirty five o'clock mm-hmm. you know what I mean so I what I do is I sort of I, I not only will I manipulate that window of time of what they have are able to expose themselves and the heat. But it's also like you're saying, I don't just walk in and it's like, okay, you're going down to 70 degrees each week. I'll drop it by five degrees. Right. And then also what you do is also what I do at least is that as I drop it, I also up the ramping time. Right. Okay. So it drops a couple degrees and it's an hour ramping time. Drops a couple more degrees. Now it's an hour, 45-minute ramping time. Right. Drops a couple other degrees. I think you can go up to about two hours, 45 minutes of ramping time where it ramps down, right. which is fine. So if it drops further, I want the ramping time to be because it will slowly start taking it down. Right. It doesn't just turn off. Right. Yeah, and I should I should back – so I'm using a uh, an oil-filled space heater to, to, to give the ambient temperature of my room. Okay. And when I say I cut off the heat at night, what I mean is there when I get down to that week where we're at like the lowest it's going to be, there's no heat mm. on. But right. like throughout that time, what I'll do is I lower the temperature, the ambient temperature using that heater. So it's, you know, it's hooked up to a thermostat and it's going down, you know, okay, it's 68 degrees or it's Say, you know, my normal nighttime temperature is probably like 79, right? Right. So I'll drop it down to, say, 77. And then the next week I'll drop it down to 75. And then the next week I'll drop it down to 73. And then, you know what I mean? And then week Mm -hmm. after week until I hit that low temp, I leave it like you were saying that you, you were down there for two weeks, the week when you hit it and the week when you're bringing it up. Mm-hmm. I leave it down there for about four weeks. Okay. Um, I just, I don't know. I just, that's how I do it. I've done it that way. And then I start ramping it back up. Um, and then usually by the time it's ramping up, I'm starting to see females hugging the heat. Mm-hmm. So that means that they're building follicles and they're about to ovulate. So, and once once you start seeing ovulation, it's regular temps. You know that's regular temps. Some uh, there have been times where this females have gone a little bit earlier, and I just boop, just bloop, brought it back yep. up. You know, um, because I think that female needs that heat during. They do from that point on. You know, right? Which you'll start to see her. She'll hug that heat. You know, whereas opposed to. I don't know if I've seen this in carpets. Maybe you have, Owen. I'm not sure. But like with ball pythons, when you're when it starts to cool down, you'll see them hug the water bowl. Yeah, um, they do. Well, I mean, when a female, I think it's when a female's building follicles, you'll see her hug the water bowl because um, they do a lot of temperature changes inside their body with those things. So they'll start hugging the water bowl because it's cool. Yeah. And. Then after the eggs really start building up, they'll start basking belly up because they want the eggs to get warm. Right. So there's a lot of temperature changes with that. So if she's gripping that water bowl tight, get that boy in there. Yeah. Like because that that that's this is when the time that comes that those things give off a lot of heat and she's trying to thermoregulate that stuff. 
Um, and that can be hard. Which is so, it's pretty freaking amazing that they they're hilarious. smart enough to know to hug the water bowl to. You know what I mean? Like they're like, yeah. oh, I want to be cooler. Let me hug this it, thing. It, <laughs> in, in my opinion, the females are so much smarter than the males when it comes to breeding <laughs> season. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Female is sitting there. She's like, I need to make sure my belly's basked up. Right. I need to make sure I'm hugging the water bowl. I'm going to move the hide box here. The male is like, female, 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 as he's just like whipping around the cage and he can be confused by the shed of another male. Uh-huh. I mean, it's. He's such an idiot. Like, he's really easy to trick. Yes. So. So true. So put in together, do you put male into the female's cage or what? does um, it matter? I usually try to put the male into the female cage. Now that I have most of my males in uh, 41 courts right. and then all the females in cages, it's going to be a lot easier for the females to have, like, um, the home field advantage. Yeah. But. The good thing is that you have all the males. You can really mess with the other boys because yes. they're all right there. Right. Um, and it's always good to have backup males. Like right now I have this year, my Xanax Jag is going this year. He's going to uh, my um, – what the hell am I breeding him to? Something. I forgot what I'm doing it with him. But um, he's going this year and – uh, oh, yeah, I'm breeding him to the head exanic female. Awesome. So I'm going to make exanic jags. I should make pure, straight-up exanic jaguars. Nice. Whole point. Now, if he doesn't go, I have two exanic males, two head exanic males behind him as backups. Okay. Both the head exanic males are proven breeders. So if he messes up, he's getting tagged out, and one of his brothers is going in there. Like, you know, that's oh, whatever. Wow. It's always okay. good to have multiples every right. once in a while or – backups sure um but i would say that what happens is first thing is male goes into female's cage probably when we get back and i start fiddling with temperatures that's when i'm going to put the pairs together right because i want them to winter together i want them to get over the initial shock of there's another snake in my room and then deal with it and then they're going to do winter and then springtime i separate them i feed them put them back together, and that male is totally forgets that he just spent, like, two, three months with this girl in his cage. Like, it's just like, who is she? And then he's all over her. Right. So that separation can do wonders. But, um, so, yeah, boy goes into girl's cage, uh, and then see what happens. I've had, I've had females lay eggs in March where you put them together, they do the winter thing, and then February, just as you warm up, before you even start feeding, they're already all over each other. Yeah. And then you got eggs in March. Yeah, I've seen that too. That's probably like where IJs are at. You know, you'll, yeah. you'll see. Yeah, I, I had it. You oh, know mine were IJs. Them. Right. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> pop carpet, sorry. Uh, but yeah. Um, so I will, I will, I, this happened to me the very first time I tried to breed. I thought mm. I had a pair. I put them mm. together. Mm-hmm. You will be able to tell the difference yes, between be combat, <laughs> combat and, breeding. you know, breeding. Yeah. Um, combat, you will see, it's almost, think of the snake like trying to climb as high as they can, and the other snake just tries to wrap around them and throw them down to the ground. Use each other as ladders. So like, yeah, that's, Correct. I mean, and also it's not gentle. Like no. when I was first described like combat, it would be like, oh, stop. No, no. no. It is like, Lord, bam, I'm like, oh, shit. Like it is. And it's instantaneous. 
it's not a slow burn. No, it's a as soon as you put them in, you'll you they can, know it. Yes, and they're all over each other. So that's why if you have an animal that you think you might be on the fence about, of if it's a male or female, put a proven breeder male in there. He will tell you what it is. Yes, if he coils up with it, it's a girl. Right. If he tries to combat it. It's a male. Yes. The only time that it doesn't work is if your proven breeding male is a jaguar. Because they don't combat very well. They don't know how. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they're special. They get a little excited. Then the Nero kicks in. Then they kind of just fall down on the other male and wiggle. Right. And it's like, well, you tried. Right. Come here. Sorry. Yeah. But um, that's it, it. It happens to everybody. And um, it's the weirdest thing, but the males, your males will know and they will tell you. Um, And I would say that combating is a useful tool and it should not be your first tool. Right. To try to get a male interested in breeding. There's so many others you can go to without having to risk combat. Because, Um, yeah, they can, the snakes can bite each other. They, they can. And they will at times. I mean, I haven't experienced that personally, but I have seen some pretty gnarly Yeah. Some pretty gnarly bites um from Google Google what happens when you put when you accidentally put two male retics together. Oh Lord. Yeah. You know, that's carpets are carpet combat is gentle. Compared retic to retics, yeah. <laughs> like, retics apparently just rip each other in half and then they're like, Yeah, he's dead. Right. It's like holy shit. Like, you know, it's so if you're not 100%, don't do it. And if there is combat, be there and pull it. Pull both animals, separate them, and then figure it out. Like, that's – don't mess with combating. It, it, some people are like, oh, I just tossed them together. Like, no, no, there's – if you're worried about trying to get a male to breed, start saving other males' sheds right now and put them in bags with their names on it. Right. Because tossing that into a cage – with a breeding male does wonders. Yeah. I mean, I, every year I usually have one male that sheds and then you don't need to put the whole shed in there, rip it into pieces. I've had one male shed ripped up his shed and threw it into all the other males cages. Like a little piece is enough to send your boy reeling. Right. He will. I I, I think I, last year I posted a picture of a talon shed and I ripped it up and I threw it in like five different males cages and within 10 minutes, all of those males where they had their faces up against the shed skin, just flicking their tongues into it, like slowly, right. like they were looking at it. And it's like, that was enough. That's enough. They know that's another male in their territory. Right. That's all they need. Right. Yeah. It's, 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 it's one of those things you're much better off, you like Owen said. And didn't you at one point make like a... Uh, oh, God, it's horrible. It's, it's the concoction. soup. Yeah, it's, soup. If you take a spray bottle with water and you shove a snake shed in it, you can spray the water into the um, other rival males' cages. And it's like having a wonderful pungent musky odor especially if your male has like peed on the shed skin as he was peeling it off like sometimes you get the wet ones yep um it's just horrible yeah it is disgusting and 
it's so much easier just to take the shed and throw it in the cage. Yes. Like, I think I did that when I only had, like, Talon as my proven breeding male. <laughs> right. And I'm like, I need other boys. Like, right. now I'm just like, I, whatever. I got, I got more than enough males. Somebody's going to peel. Right. Also, I'll take the sheds of a male that isn't quite ready yet. If he produces sperm plugs, I'll throw that shed in there. Whatever. Right. You know, my male doesn't care. He knows there's another male around. So it's... But yeah, if you really want to get disgusting, you can do that. But if my you, suggestion is to throw it away at the end of the season <laughs> because if you let that thing just ooh ferment ooh. all summer, oh oh, it's not good. Bull, you bull. know, if you do, if you do, if you're not getting any action and you mm. do end up, you know, physically combating the snake. The cool thing about combat in captivity is is that they can kind of like tussle a bit. You separate them. And, you know, <laughs> both, both of them could be won. the winners, <laughs> you know, whereas in the wild, there's one well, there winner, would be a loser. And yeah, there's a loser. You know, so it's your, like your puny weak male that got his ass kicked will be like, oh, shit, I won. Right. And then he will go to that girl. Right. <laughs> it's like, all right. <laughs> so I, I would say, you know, let's talk a little bit about like some of the uh, observations that you would make. Well, during this time, well, like real what, quick, I would also say that yeah. um, don't go above three females. I think two females is a stretch for one male. Yes. And if something is important to you, do not rotate males because um, you don't want to be in a situation where you don't know who the sire of a certain clutch is. Yeah, I, I never I never no. mess with that. No, no, this is the boy and he will do this. And if he doesn't do this, oh, well, you know, it's not as. It's not as bad if you're doing like say coastal to coastal, mm. but if you're doing stuff like what I do, where you're doing, you know, you're doing those Flip pure stuff, or, and yeah. then you're doing you know Frankensteining. Um, yeah. You don't want to like say say you have a tiger jag. I wouldn't go and put my hypo male to the tiger jag, and then back it up with a you know albino caramel zebra jag. Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, I wouldn't. Uh, I would. I wouldn't mix uh, that up because uh, I might have these babies that pop out and they look. Like I wouldn't be able to touch them. Oh, like, uh, uh, yeah. dirty, dirty, snakes. dirty. Just, no, what did you? What have you done? So, like, you'll see things like, uh, you know, during this time, you'll see things like spurring. You know, yep. that's where you'll see the male uh, sort of like spurring the females back. Um, yep, that's Which, a good sign. Yeah. Some of them just do it a little bit. Certain species spur so bad that they will actually cause damage to the female scales. And she'll kind of have like a fleck pattern going up her back mm-hmm. uh, uh, where he's just dug in with the spurs. Some overzealous males will spur the entire length of the female. Yes. Um, and it's just like, dude, like my Woma female every year looks horrible. When he gets in there with her, You're and on. I'm like, you've spurred her head. Like, what? What are you doing? Like, if you even know how to do this, like, right. it, yeah. he's an idiot. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, you know, I kind of like, I'll look in there and I'll look at them, and if they're laying together, you know, kind of coiled together, to me, that's a good thing. That's uh, sort of going in the sharing, right direction. If they're sharing the heat, if they're sharing the hide, if they're just coiled up together and you walk by and you see two heads pop up. That's always good. Right. Um, a lot of times, like you said, the female will be in or around the water. That's great. Um, 
and never this is like when you start getting into warm up now is the that is the time of you know if you don't see both of them leave the cage alone you know if they're both in the bin right. don't touch it right if they're both doing something they're both up on top and you can't quite make out if they're not if they're locked leave them alone now see like, i don't know about you but i see mm-hmm. most of my locks at like in the early a.m. So we're talking to work. like 4 yeah. a.m. Yep. You know, I'll, that's when I see the majority of if, of my when action. I do my, yeah, when I do my morning checks, that's when they're locked. Yep. And then when I do my evening checks, that's when they're locked again. Yeah. So you have a small window to get in there. But even then, sometimes, like this year, uh, the only lock I saw out of the breadle, the bread light clutch, was one I interrupted. Okay. Because I'm like, oh, they're curled up on the top bin, whatever. And I go and I pull out the bin and I see his hemipenes come out of her. And I'm like, no. <laughs> oh, dear. What have I done? Right. And it's like, you know, it's um, so you never want like if, if you ha- like I have to see them both. I have to see them both not locked and then I will clean their cage. Right. Yeah. That springtime is to be. After cool down, like what, during the warm up, that's the time to be lazy. That's the time to maybe give them a day, right? When it comes to their cage, you know, it's, you know, I I got very good at the scrubbing and cleaning and giving them fresh water, but leave everything else until tomorrow. You know, agreed, agreed. The last thing you want to do is is just intervene and fuck it up. You know, because that might have been the only lock that you got that year or something like that. Or you might freak that male out so much he doesn't lock up again. Right. Yeah, so he gets spooked. Um, yeah. So then, yeah, I mean, pretty much from then, it's just a matter of putting waiting. putting them together and waiting. So like and the only difference with the, you know, the spring breeders is it's just the timing. So you're not putting them together through the winter. You're just nope. putting them together. Once the temperatures come back up, and I believe you start to feed them, right? I when the temperatures I wait. come up. Yeah, I usually when when the carpets come up, that's when the bread lie come back into the room, and then they start coming up, and then they're fed immediately as well, and then everybody goes together. Um, I mean, I mean, like the bread lie, the carpets already up eating and together by the time the bread lie come in, and then same thing happens. They get fed, they go together. So, but the bread lie, I do not winter together. Right. Um, the first time I got bread, bread lie eggs, I got locks from them in January. And then I didn't get eggs till August. Right. So they were just overzealous. I don't know why, because the math on that does not work. Right. So <laughs> um, I would say that's your best bet, um, especially because bread lie never turn off that switch of food. So... The entire time during their cool down and in winter in the tubs, they're coming at you right. fast. Um, so, yeah, I would just say that. I mean, I'm giving my one female the year off. And then my other female, I don't know what she's doing right now. Um, she's eating, but she just kind of seems a little weird. She had a slug clutch this year, so I'm trying to give her a little bit of an assessment right. before we get to it. But, um, like I said, I was going to try to cool them down inside the snake room. Uh but I'm kind of leaning more and more towards that. I'm just going to put them in bins on top of like the team or Python cages or something like that over in the side room. Um, just cause I think it'd be easier that way. And they can really get the cool down. Um, 
But yeah, bring him in, warm him up. And like I said, I'm giving that one female the year off, but I'm still going to cycle her through winter. Right. Because she's put on plenty of weight. It's just now she's not going to get eggs. Now there will not be babies. So right. watch her retain sperm and just lay <laughs> just eggs anyway. God fucking damn it. Right. <laughs> like, I'm trying to help you. Like, you know, it's like I had one corn snake. I'm like, all right, you laid a clutch. Good job. Now you take the rest of the year off because you look like dog shit. And you'll do, why did you double clutch? Like, I didn't <laughs> tell you to do that. It's like, you know, it's like, now you look worse. It's like it sometimes they just do it. Right. So, yeah. I, and then basically at that point, like I said earlier, if you, you, you know, you're going to start to look for ovulation. Um, mm-hmm. And I miss them all the time. Yeah. And um, I think, I think. It, I don't know if it's just because I've worked with so many carpets and bred so many carpets that it just it looks it's so obvious to me. But like, you know, Owen will come to my collection and say, you know, I'll be asking him, like, do you think? And he'll be like, yeah, definitely. And I'll go to his collection and I'll be like, dude, what are you talking about? You what know? do you mean it's, this it's, thing's it's, not gravity? It's, yeah, it's like that's freaking gravity that as hell. Is, you should always try to have a friend come over because they will tell you that you're being stupid. Yes. <laughs> like. It, these are the animals you see all the time, and it's hard to kind of assess girth situation unless it's like a thinner-bodied animal. Then it's like, holy shit. Like, And also, my thing is, is I've mistaken Ovswell for Gravid a few times. Yes. So I would say that if you're sitting there waiting to put the male in until you see the Ovswell, you're playing a very dangerous game. Male in now. Right. Ovswell happen, he's already there. <laughs> like, right. that's right. That's it. Right. You know, also breeding can cause the ovulation to ha- occur. So putting him in there could move that along. Right. There's like a look to mm-hmm. the, I, I find it so hard to explain this. I mm-hmm. call it ladder belly. <laughs> <laughs> and base- when the belly scales pop out. Yeah. It's like, yeah. it's like the, the, it's almost like the snake's body is way bigger than the belly scales and mm-hmm. the belly scales sort of like they're like they just remind I, I don't i don't know how to explain it other than just to say that they kind of remind me of like like it's real tight ladder yeah. you know and you see like if you were to look at the snake from the belly and straight on it kind of looks like you know you see like the the fat on the the, the basically the follicles on the, yeah. you know, the the side of the snake and you know you you can also feel them when they go through your hand yeah i was never good at that but i think after i think last I think, season you showed it to me and i kind of kind of got it but yeah you know um also the 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 other thing i have is that certain females when they're growing the eggs they don't want you touching it like they if you like you're letting it go, like you're letting her glide through your hand, and then the second you hit with the eggs, and she doubles back. You're like, okay, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like, all right, sorry. Yeah. Like you know, it. Certain ones are very protective of that kind of stuff. Right. Um, and I would say that's what you do. You, you're, you're just watching, waiting. This is when the female's gonna move the bin. That's why I like to have the bins that I have in those cages. They have those year round. Those are their bins. Um, it smells like them. They're safe in those bins. I usually don't try to clean out those bins unless they're not in them. This way, it maintains the safety of the bin. They know it's a safe place to go and a safe place to hide that they've never been found in. 
and that's where they lay the eggs. Um, yeah. It used to be, I used to have these bins without lids. They were kind of like little tunnels. And maybe one out of ten carpets would lay them in the fucking bin, like underneath the bin, underneath the cover. Other ones would be on top, over the side, over there. Since I flipped them and put the hole in the front and put the lid on top so that they can get inside them, like they could, like they have to go up and crawl into them. Uh huh. All my females lay in that in the bins. Okay. Yeah, it's um f- for me. So if you're breeding in a you know, so if you're breeding in a cage, I would definitely say about you know how Owen's saying about the bin. If you're breeding in a rack, then mm. what I would say is that you take what I do is I just would take um, sphagnum moss and I mm-hmm. would just put it in the entire tub. Fucking load it up in the entire tub. Female can pick where she wants to go. I would say ninety nine point nine percent of the time that female the female is on the back on the heat, and that's where she's kind of staying. But mm-hmm. I have seen, um, and that's more with maternal. Well, I have seen with um, poplin carpets. Um, you know, I I had overhead heat. It was actually a lamp back in that day, and. Um, she would move the tub, you know, away from that. And I kept moving it to that. And she kept moving it away from that. And I'm <laughs> like, why is, why? And then finally I gave up. And that's when she went in there. And then she sort of stayed there until she laid the eggs. And obviously, mm-hmm. for whatever reason, it was too hot. And she didn't want to be that hot. So it just amazed me, you know. Um, yeah. I've also seen them do that when they're maternally incubating the eggs. Like it's too hot. They move. They kind of like they kind of beehive around the bottom and they actually pick the clutch up and then they kind of move over. They'll drag it. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's kind of it's kind of crazy. If 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 one of my moms is getting ready to lay and she moves the bin, don't freaking touch it. She put it there for a reason. Right. And it took her great effort and pain to slide a bin (laughs) to where it needed to go. Right. And you moving it back, you're a son of a bitch. Like, you know, no. Leave it there. Like, I've had females move the bin almost to where it's touching the water bowl. Yes. Okay? Like, if I clean the cage, guess where the bin goes back? Right there. Almost touching the water bowl. Because that's where she wants it. And there's a reason for it. I used to think back in the early days, it's like, no, this is not what it says in the book. It has to be this temperature. And it's like, no. 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 Listen, she knows better. (laughs) She didn't read the book. She's going to do that. Like, listen, I understand some females will be like, my eggs belong in the water bowl. All right. She's an idiot. Okay. That one's stupid. (laughs) Don't listen to that one. Right. But most of them, if you give them a secluded place with a bunch of, We'll say cover, moss, mulch, right, whatever, right. They'll put the eggs there, right. Yeah, hundred percent. And then good luck getting them away from her. <laughs> so yeah, so you have about what twenty days from when she ovulates to a prelay shed, something like that. Twenty twenty five. Yeah, I I barely even try for the prelay shed. Like I don't even. I, I if she's looking huge and uncomfortable and then goes blue and I'm like cool prelay, like I don't. I've missed those things so many times where it's like, this is the prelay shed, and then it peels. And I'm like, oh, man. And then at, like, day 20, she goes blue again. I'd be like, well, I have no idea what's happening now. It's like I've that's... had, yeah, I've had the pre-ovulation shed that I mistook mm-hmm. for the prelay shed. 
Exactly. Because when the female ovulates, obviously she swells up. Sometimes that can trigger Sometimes shed. she sheds. Yeah. So, exactly. Sometimes she sheds. Sometimes she doesn't. Right. Sometimes she just looks dull and crappy for a bit. Right. It's, that would be something that I would note for that particular female. So that drive herself nuts next time. Correct. Yeah. Because she'll probably do it again. You know? Yes. So then that way, you know, you can reflect in your notes and you can say, oh, this coastal girl, she does this pre-ovulation shit, you know, so not to get twisted and not to, to totally throw some, you off. You know, but some females do the same thing every year. Like every year I bred Venus, she had eggs around the end of March. Right. And she would literally lay the eggs and I would like take them from her. She would like give them up. She didn't want these things. Right. Um, and then I would feed her and then she'd go back to doing her normal thing. Right. Like that was it. That was her clockwork. It was end of March. Um, and that's what you should always go by is right. figure out what these girls do. And you should take notes. You should notate it. You should try to figure it out because this way, you know, if something's not quite right or if you haven't really got there or this female normally lays eggs around this time. Mm hmm. And she's acting a little strange. Right. You know, that's just how it goes. You know when to get the mail in there. Or, hey, she's all swollen up. Could be could be, could be, be eggs. Oh, wait, no. Around this time last year was her ovulation. So, crap, get the boy. Right. You know? Yeah. So then uh, basically at that point, it's just a waiting game for the eggs. Mm -hmm. And uh, my experience has been with my animals is, like, I can tell the day before they're going to lay because when they twist up in a pretzel knots. Shit. Yeah, they're just kind of they lay weird, like weird, very strange. Um, and I'm like, up, oh, she's gonna lay tomorrow, and sure enough, she. Uh, lays a I notice a lot more when I have the bins full of mulch. Um, she'll start twisting and making a divot uh -huh. in the mulch, and that's when I'm like, all right, it might not have maybe happen that day, but it happens within probably about two or three because she's making herself comfortable. And she's getting where she wants to go, and that's where she's going to be. And then you're right. You open the, the bin, and they're inverted, twisted, and you're like, all right, tomorrow. And then beehive. Yeah. Yeah, there's no mistake. So, like, a lot, like in my early days of when I was breeding carpets, I got fooled a lot of times because when the female is, you know, ovulated or if she, you know, is in that pre-ovulation, she kind of lays tight. And it kind of mm -hmm. like it could be mistaken as like, oh, is there eggs under there? But there no. is no mistaking when she's the wrapped beehive. around eggs because she, yeah, that's exactly she it. She, she goes up. Yeah. And those eggs are kind of wrapped around her. Taking the eggs from her, I mean, I haven't really run into too I, many issues. Um, if you get them early, like say you get there and she's, say she laid them, say you checked on her at nighttime, nothing was there. And then you check there in the morning and there were eggs and you get to her. She's tired. Right. Like that, that wears the hell out of them. I mean, and then you usually pull them away and there's usually just a bunch of hissing and puttering and and then that's it. Right. If you give her a day <laughs> to like kind of rest and right. sleep, she's, she's going to be on I, fire. <laughs> I had, I had one female that late Trinity, she laid one year and she was underneath. She didn't lay them in the bin. She laid them underneath the basking ledge. And she was beehived up to where her head was touching the bottom of, like, the under part of the ledge. So she was jammed in there. Right. And I'm like, I got to go to work. So I went to work. And I ended up doing a bunch of stuff. 
and I ended up sleeping over at a friend's place, and I got to her the next morning. She was ready. <laughs> like she, she, <laughs> she had spent she spent all day waiting. <laughs> like waiting. Was, Go she ahead. She jammed back in there. She's like, "Come on!" And I'm like, "I don't want to do this." <laughs> like, I almost left him with her just because I didn't want to do it. Right. Um, but but you didn't want to do maternal incubation. I didn't want to do maternal bad. incubation. I, no, <laughs> no, I I, I wish that um, I won't do it. <laughs> I won't do it. I won't prove Eric right. It's like I I pulled her off and. Uh, she bit me once, and then I was able, like, when she bit me, I was able to untwist her because she wouldn't let go. Right. So she's like just chewing on me as I'm untwisting her from the eggs. Oh Jesus! But um, you know, and that's just the way, you know, it's what that's what you gotta do sometimes. And I think you have to um, be fast and deliberate. Your you actions do. have to be fast and deliberate. You can't hesitate. You hesitate, no. that's when you're gonna have trouble. You hit. So you yeah. just also, have to, like whoop whoop, wrap her around them, and you're good yep. to go. Also, it's like whatever you try, if you try to be like, if you try to pull her and stabilize the eggs at the same time, that's when they go everywhere. Right. And it's like you got to understand is that as long as you're within the first 24 hours, the Zambros have not attached to the wall yet. So it's OK. If they stumble a little bit, it's fine. Don't in two weeks take the clutch and flip it upside down. Right. Like, you know, duh. Right. But immediately it's still OK. This is also the time when you would pull them apart if you need to. Right. Which I say is very dangerous, but you should do it very slowly. Do not go near those eggs with dental floss. No matter what you read online, yes, taking dental floss to a clutch of eggs is a good way to slice an egg in half by accident. Use your hands. Work it slowly. It's going to feel almost like fake spider webs. Yeah, yeah, it's almost like I equate it to like melted marshmallows. Almost, yes. you know, it's kind of like. Ripping, pulling apart a cotton ball. It's like you're going to see that same fibrous stuff. Right. And you can easily use your fingers to separate the eggs and pull them apart. You might see a little bit of a weak spot from where they were connected, but as long as you don't have any yolk spilling out, you're fine. Right. And I would not – it's okay to leave eggs connected. Just make sure everybody's laying flat in the egg box. See, I'm a guy – I take them as they are. You know, like however they're laid, I just yeah. take them out. I put them in the bin. That's how they go. The only time that I really kind of separate, separate them, I need to like, I need one clutch fits into four bins here. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. <laughs> um, the only re- the only time that I ever like really go in there and mess with separating them out is like I've had a couple times where some eggs have gone bad and I pull that out. If there's a little bit of mold, I, I don't sweat that. I don't. Let it ride. Yeah, I kind of. Well, let it it's. Ride. Listen, if you there, here's the thing, I usually try to separate. And if there's like, there's usually like one or two eggs that are laid on top, and like the lid like can't close, and it's like, all right, get out of here. You pull it and you move it. Um, but that's usually what I do. Um, when it comes, because also with them stuck together is really helpful because then nobody moves around. So yeah. Um, the if you get mold. What I would recommend is uh, foot powder, the antifungal foot powder, just sprinkling that onto it and then, like, blowing it off um, is fine. But I would really, I really only use that as if we're getting down the home stretch and the eggs are starting to get moldy. Right. Just to kind of sprinkle it on there, just to kind of make sure that nothing happens and that we can get this thing to hatch. Sure. It's a, it's a crapshoot. I mean, I, I used to use diluted Listerine. Uh-huh. But that's putting a lot of moisture on those eggs. 
foot powder, you put it on there, you dab it, you rub it onto the mold, mold dies. About a week later, mold come back because, duh. But you just put more powder on. It's a good way to dry it out, but it's going to keep coming back. It's something you have to constantly keep doing. Um, and then the babies hatch. You're done. You don't yep. have to do it anymore. My uh, maternal incubation method, I mean, my incubation method is uh, I use the uh, suspended above water uh, okay. method. Um, seems I to go, work pretty well. I go above perlite, um, and I usually mix up the perlite to the consistency of wet sand. Right. Um, and then add a little bit more water after that just to be safe. Right. Um, and I used to do it, like, because it used to be, like, one-to-one. Young Owen used to sit there with, like, a measuring cup and be freaking meticulous about that shit. <laughs> yeah. Older Owen fills up the bin with <laughs> with perlite, sprays water in there, drains it because all the excess water, like, just drains out. Right. Mixes it up, <laughs> lays it flat, puts the little plastic thing on it, and goes, done. <laughs> like, it's five seconds. Like, I don't know. Wow. Whatever. Um, and that's it. It's really all you got to do. Yeah. Um, Go ahead. Eggs are set. Uh, I would say. 88. 88. Uh, my, mine does 88, uh, and then it drops down to uh, 87.8, and then goes back up to 88. Like, that's as far as I'll let it drop. Right. Um, and then you're going to watch for condensation. When you start getting a lot of condensation on the lid, which I also suggest what you do is open it and like dry the lid, like wipe the lid because it's going to keep forming condensation. You don't want that dripping on the eggs. Uh, once you start seeing condensation, you're about like a week away because those babies toward the end give off a ton of heat and the eggs will just go from these gooey little marshmallows to these like big plump leathery feeling like about to explode eggs to they will start shriveling back up on each other and then babies will yeah. pop out. Yeah. It's, um, you know, this is where to me, carpet pythons really kind of shine. Um, yep. you can do like, you don't really see other py- other pythons can do this, but you don't really see other breeders kind of capitalizing on it. And I think, I don't know, I could be biased, but I think carpets may be the best at it. You know, you got the whole maternal incubation thing. Yeah. Um, a lot of people are scared about that type of thing because they're worried about how do you control the heat? How do you control the humidity? Mom um, does that. Mom will do that. Um, I've said before, I've seen her pick up the eggs and move them onto the hot spot. It gets too hot. She kind of mm. like picks the eggs up, moves them away from the hot spot. I've she seen wants humidity. She'll dip herself in the water and then coil around them. Yeah, I've seen that as well. I've seen her put her head in her coils, um, breathing into the eggs. I've seen her urinate to where that humidity also comes up uh, into the into the coils and the clutch. Um, mm. You know, it's just interesting stuff. Um, you do have to kind of want, I mean, you know, I've had some mishaps where, you know, um, you know, it got too dry. Um, and I noticed that, you know, there, if I'm going to do maternal incubation, I try to keep it, them higher up in my room. If I mm. go too low, I think sometimes that they have to work too hard to keep those temperatures where they need to be. Cause obviously it's always going to be cooler towards the bottom of your room. Which is kind of also on a just on a side note. Now that I'm saying it, I forgot to hit on this when we were talking. 
when you're doing something like a diamond jungle, um, mm. my recommendation is to keep them the way you would a jungle carpet, but keep them lower in your room. So naturally their ambient temperature will just be lower. Um, and I've right. had success with that. You know, a lot of people have said, um, you know, similar things that they do. Um, they don't necessarily treat it like a diamond python, but because my temperatures are dropping really close to what you would do for a diamond python, it's kind of like, you know, I don't really know if that's, if, if, if just being on the bottom is the reason, is it because they're already going to be that low anyway? Is it, you know what I mean? It's kind of like one of those weird things, but that's, that would be my recommendation as far as that goes back to maternal incubation. And it's pretty much set. The one thing I will say is like, you have to keep an eye on the female. You have to watch her. I had this past season where I had a jungle leave the clutch of eggs. I didn't pay attention for a couple of days, and I don't know how long those eggs were not, you know, where they should be. Now, I did hatch some, but a lot of those eggs went bad because I'm assuming that she probably left those eggs for a few days. You know, for whatever reason, she's like, you know, she moved on. She moved off of them. I should have been there. I should have been checking them every day and then put them into the incubator. But I kind of got a little cocky because I've done maternal incubation so many times that I'm like, oh, mom knows best. She's going to take care of them. Why would she leave? You know, blah, blah, blah. And, mm. you know, she did. Sometimes it happens, you know. It and, does. It, it And it will happen at the worst time. And you need to be prepared for this. So. Right. Yeah. And then, you know, it's just a waiting game. They hatch out. And, uh, you know, the last thing that we'll hit on is basically, you know, which is very simple. Uh, my basic baby setup is just I use something similar to a six quart. T- I use sea serpent racks. Um, I think, though, I'm, I may be switching over to the Vision, you know, the V18s, mm-hmm. um, the, you know, the small long tubs. I may use those. I just kind of like the idea that the vision is open. I like the idea that it has that long gradient, all that kind of stuff. Um, but for the most part, uh, for the longest time, I've used six quart type tubs, sea serpent racks, which are great. They are. They're really good. Um, yeah. And basically, what I do is I just I put um, uh, some type of perch uh, because you'll find that carpets seem to um, take food. Uh, more readily if they're perched above, like almost like they're above looking down, sort of like that chondro type of pose, um, waiting for something to come along and boom, they'll, they'll smack it. Um, another thing is, is that they want to feel secure. So I do like, like Owen uses those, you know, something similar to like a regular hide box. Right. And, mm-hmm. he, and I'm assuming you put it on the end where the heat is, right? Yes. Okay. Yep. So, the reason that I like the, the paper towel holder is because it takes up the length of the tub. The snake can get in there, and to me, the snake wants to feel secure and like wants it to be tight. Um, and then that makes them feel more confident, and, and it seems to get a better feeding response from them. But the thing that I like most about that, and I wish I'm going to put this out, maybe David Brahms is listening, and he can come up with a concept. But I really believe that if you could create a hide box that was long... Mm-hmm. Rather than, you know, like the square type of thing, you would you would be able to take advantage. That snake would be able to be in the hide and be able to take advantage of the cool side and the, the hot warm side. side. Yeah. Right? So they can yep. they can thermoregulate right within that hide. 
and they're paper towel holders, so you can throw them away. And everybody that, that takes care of snakes has tons of paper towels. So anytime I have the holder, I throw it in a bin. And then, you know, just as when I have babies, then I start. Which is, them. you know, what's weird is I, I kind of did a little bit of an experiment is I have the, because I moved on to craft paper because everything that I resist eventually becomes something that I have to do because of you. Um, <laughs> okay. And there's these big tubes that come with the craft paper. Right. And I threw that in with my female uh, Maclots because I'm like, here, enjoy the tube. She won't touch it. She doesn't want anything to do with it. It just sits there. And I'm like, all right. So Macs don't like tubes. Yeah, and I've had, and I know, Owen, you you can agree with this. I've had some some carpet, and I'm just going to talk carpets. Like some mm. carpets, they like hot. Other ones, they they stay on top of it. You know? Yeah, I mean. Some I've perch, had, some don't. Some don't. Like yeah. I have, I have one female mac that sits on top of her hide, and I know she does it because every time I go to pull her drawer, it's so goddamn hard to open because she's crammed herself between the top of her hide box and the top of and the, and, and and the and like the top of the ceiling. Yeah. And I try to open it, and then you hear a thud, which means that she's fallen off the back of the hide box. And now the entire thing opens quite easily. But now I have a pissed off Maclots python coming at me. Coming at so you. So it's right. whatever. They're, some of them are dumb. Some stay on perches. Some do it their entire lives. Other ones just look up at the sticks and go, I don't know. Like, I, do, I tell you, I'm adding shelves to the wood cages. No. There's so much space that they can't utilize that I was going to put a shelf up higher. Okay. And like their water bowls and higher than the bins, but I was going to do it on the cold sides because uh, the hot side, they'd be getting closer to the heat, but I want to give them someplace up high that they can kind of go up onto. So I was going to add shelves okay. over there. Um, I haven't done it yet because it's kind of hard to do that once all the cages are full now. So during the pair up, I'm probably going to have, cause everyone's going to be in each other's cages I'm going to have a bunch of open cages, and I'm going to build the shelves, and then I'm going to put the pairs in the cages and open up the other cages and build more shelves. So, uh, oh, cool. But I figured that would be a thing, and I'm like, all right, they may never use it. There might be one that never leaves it. Like, all right, we'll give it a shot. So, Yeah, I think with the, for me, you know, mm. with the baby setup type of thing, is like I just like to try to give them options, and then they yes. decide, you know. Um, I use a 16-ounce cup, deli cup. That I can, mm. you know, toss away. And what I found is, is that in a pinch, when I don't have a perch, or they don't like the perch that I gave them, what I'll see a lot of times with my carpets is they perch right on that 16-inch delicate. Mm-hmm. It's high enough to where it's off the ground, you know. Um, and they, especially with my poplin carpets, I see that a lot. Um, but uh, yeah, um, and then yeah, I mean that's pretty much it. I weighed about. I would say I wait till they're the baby shed. What I tried to do early on is I would try to feed the babies right from the gate. And right. I had hit or miss success. But what I do is I kind of just wait. I almost wait a month. I would yeah, think. Yeah, I do too. A month. And then yeah. I kind of start feeding trials. And I found better success with waiting that time period than with not. You need to let them. They need. They normally shed when they've exhausted all the yolk in their stomachs. Sometimes they shed before they've exhausted all the yolks. Sometimes they shed, you know, after they've exhausted all the yolk. Like it, it just don't base everything off of the sheds. I say, 
Now, wait a month before you offer food right. to babies. Right. And you're probably going to get more success. I would say certain ones you offer live immediately, certain ones you want to try frozen thawed. I would also say that with me, when they've come fresh out of the egg, that's usually when I sex them. Yeah. Is I usually pop them. So do I. And then I separate. And I try not to keep more than five or six to a bin. Because if you cram an entire clutch into a bin, you're going to have a problem. Um, I also put them on paper towel, wet, uh, dampened paper towels for the first probably two weeks. Um, Because they they, they come out like nice and they come out all slimy and Mm. stuff like that. So I kind of keep them on damp paper towel. Uh, They start to like clean up they start to pee all over the place so paper towels will get disgusting and you just got to keep on top of them and then eventually you just separate them give them all their id tags and then they're all in newspaper for me um but i would say feed trials can be annoying and we can go into like all the different tips and tricks about feeding Ugh, excuse me but everybody's got one something doesn't matter and some people are cocky about their feed trial tips where it's like, let me tell you guaranteed every single time. No, it's not. It's not. No, it just happens to be working. Like nothing is guaranteed. Nothing is ever going to work. One year, a a clutch from the same parents hatching from the same conditions could all fly to food. And then the next year they could be, you'd be ripping your hair out. It just happens to be how it goes. So. Yeah, I mean, I guess since I've uh, a couple things that I've adopted that have really helped uh, with, um, you know, getting babies to go one having a hot spot for the longest time. Mm-hmm. I didn't have babies on any heat at all. Um, but um, as of this past season, I put them on hot spots and uh, I've seen a lot more success uh, with basically no issues at all. I, mm-hmm. I didn't have any issues um, the past two seasons. And um yeah, I, that to me that's a big thing, and I uh, I I try to, you know, with the gelatins that I just I, for the longest time I would just go straight to live hoppers, um, mm-hmm. and it seemed to just get that response. Um, and this year I didn't I didn't do that, and I got them to take frozen thawed right from the gate without any issues. So I think the waiting part of it. You know, that will I would be curious to see what happens this year when I try it um, to see, you know, if it if the same holds true. But waiting that period of time, get them nice and hungry, ready to go, offer them the meal, make sure that the prey is, is warmed up. Um, and then I just put it in there and, you know, um, I, I do this thing where I kind of like right behind the neck. Um, mm-hmm. There's this like I, I call it the magic the spot. spot. If you yeah. hit that spot. The right way, a carpet will naturally sort of like turn its head and it sort of coils mm-hmm. already. And it, it must be like an instinct thing. And then it just sort of like, oh, okay. And then it kind of figures out what it's doing and then it kind of to wraps. Now, I've had at times where it'll drop it over time. Then you got to go back and you got to do it again. Nowhere as difficult as chondros, but sometimes they can be a little finicky for sure. Yeah. Um, and then that's pretty much it. I mean, that's breeding carpets. Um, it's pretty straightforward. It's pretty simple. Um, you know, uh, and it's very rewarding. I mean, carpet pythons to me, you know, that's, that's like we talked about earlier to me, that's my species to go to. 
Um, I seem to be able to dial in, you know, be able to read them, be able to tell what's going on just by watching um, and observing them. So, um, yeah. It's, it is really cool and it's really like enjoyable getting the babies as much as you might bitch and as much as you might be like, I hate these things. Why won't they eat? Like it's the reason we still do this is because of yeah. all the fun things. And you know what, to be honest with you, a year when that baby hits about a year old, you're going to forget all the crap that it put you through when you're trying to get it to eat the first couple times. Cause it'll just be pounding food and it'll just become that animal. Like, you know, it's, and and to be honest, the coolest thing is hatching a baby, raising the baby, and then breeding it. Yes, hundred percent. I can't get over that. Like, and, and this is the weird thing. I have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. I think I have about twelve animals that I've raised from hatchlings going this year. Nice. Not including like the roughies, <laughs> like <you know? laughs> it's like uh, all the carpets. Like I mean, there's a bunch, and some of them I've hatched myself. Like all the caramel stuff this year, right? I hatched in house, right? And that's three pairs of yeah. animals. Yeah, man, that's that's awesome. That means yeah. that you as a breeder have come a long way. You know, I mean, yeah. that's success, and you know, now you're breeding your own stock. You know, and oh, dude, it's weird is that um, I'm starting to like weave shit together and in and out. Um, I have Sophie's daughter going with Talon's grandkid. <laughs> like, oh, wow. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, damn, dude. Like, you know, it's like this year I'm going to take my Lemke Coastal. I'm going to mix it with that Tiger Jag project that I've been fucking around with for 10 years. Nice. So, um, yeah, it's it's just so cool. Um, and I mean, I was taking pictures of, uh, my holdbacks uh-huh. and I'm like, damn, like I, I, I got some good stuff kicking around here and, uh, it's really cool to think about it. It's even cooler to think about is that in the next four or five years, right. I will be able to breed citrus tiger to citrus tiger. Oh, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> Uh, yes, and then I have a Hikon Jag that I can throw a citrus tiger through. I'm going to go nuts with them. They're going to be my Frankenstein projects. Uh, what would you have done to me? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Excellent. Well, it's yeah. like this year I have the uh, citrus tiger head albino going to my albino. Right. It's like I I, I don't know what the hell it's going to be like. I mean, that's going to be weird. I've never hatched albinos. Oh, that's right. I've never hatched albinos. So like it's pretty cool. I think it's going to be weird. I think it's going to be weird cuz I've never had like a pink carpet python. The thing of it is is like, you know, it's like we it's talk, wrong looking, right? Yeah, we talk about this a lot on the show but like, you know, again, albino carpets like back in the day, man, they were like yeah. 120 grand. 120 grand people Dude, were paying for some, these things. Some guy bought a bunch, brought them over. His name was Chris Proctor. He bred them. He published a article in Reptiles Magazine about breeding the white carpet python. Yep. And I'm like, what? Now, his were Darwin IJ crosses. Correct. And everyone freaked the F out. Mm-hmm. 
And then the following year, Pure Darwin showed up. Yes. <laughs> and everything went to shit. Yeah. These, these couple thousand dollar carpet pythons were just seen as mutt crosses and they crashed. Yeah. And I remember because he was talking such a big game because he had the albinos. And he was talking to somebody who had the Xanthics. And they were talking about how they're going to originally cross them and get the first double head snows as quick as humanly possible. Right. And then he brought in a pair of caramels. And he's like, oh, I'm going to breed these and I'm going to start getting the sunglows going. Well, then after the Darwin show up in the market for albinos bottoms, unless it's pure Darwin, he sold out of everything. Right. And he got rid of all his stuff. And that pair of caramels ended up in somebody's hands. <laughs> so it's... It's just weird to think about that kind of stuff and what's plugged in and what's not. So, yeah, I think, you know, the sort of like the albino carpet is probably similar to like what you are with rough scales. Mm. And the idea that, you know, I can't believe that this is in my collection. So the first time I got an albino, it was actually a proven adult male. Yeah. Um, from Paul. And that's Dole. the one that, uh, yeah. No, 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 no. No. De- Dex- Dexter. 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 <laughs> yes. Dull. Yeah. Dull. Wait, that was the dull is the albino jack. We have Dexter Snake and Dexter Dog. What the well, hell is this? <laughs> I had Dexter Snake before I had Dexter Dog. And I, but know, I like Dexter Dog, so yes. I'm going to be all right with this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> out, of, out of all your dogs, he's my favorite. Right. So I actually changed his name to Dex, you know, so ah, that Snake's okay. name is Dex. No, so this way we won't be confused right. and you won't say Dexter and the snake comes right. in the room. I got it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But um, when I first opened that bag, when I got that from Paul, um, cool. dude, I was blown away. I couldn't believe dude, that I had an albino carpet. So. People used to, the, the when, the, when all those ones were coming in through South Africa, people were walking around shows with them in bins, yeah. offering people, if they wanted a ton of freaking money for these things. I remember and, that because you messaged me and you're like, Dude, dude! <laughs> like I got the whole boat now. Like, today. Dude, <laughs> oh my god! This is something we've never seen before. Like, dude, the people, kids these days don't understand yes. that what 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 they take for granted was a big freaking deal. Like, um, zebras, super zebras. Like, I, like, come on, that never happened. Um, what is it? There was a. <laughs> There was, uh, you'll love this, uh, looking through my Instagram at all the pictures that were at Tinley Park. Um, Todd at Psychotic Exotics posted up a jungle jaguar. Right. Dude, this jungle jaguar. Yeah, oh, we I were saw talking, that. We it's were talking about still this. available or something yeah. like that? Yeah. 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 yeah we were, you know, we were talking about the super, the super tiger jaguar. Yeah. That looks like it. That looks like it, but yellow. Yeah. Like, I mean, Yes. I'm just like, Jesus Christ, and nobody bought this thing? Yeah. It's weird how that changes, man. It's just, it's it's crazy. I know. I know. You know? And so that's why I say what's cool now, you know, might not be cool tomorrow. And what's cool tomorrow uh, may not be cool, after, you know, later on down the line. So, like, what Dude, we that's... thought was a big deal in, like, 2007 turns out to be not such a big deal in 2019. You Dude, know? <laughs> I don't even want to, like, half this morph stuff I'm just doing just for my own kicks. Like, I'm not chasing morphs down. That, that's, a, that's a... 
I think a lot of race you never win. I mean, I would much rather dedicate my time and energy to the other projects that I have here that are not morph related. Um, Sure. I mean, I'm, I'm hoping to get water pythons this year. No one will care. No one will care. I will care. No one will care. <laughs> like I will care. I will think you will care. <laughs> but um, also, uh, Timor pythons, olive pythons, Woma pythons, right? Rough scale pythons. Like I'm hoping to get that stuff. I I just want those. You know, the carpets are going to do what the carpets do. <laughs> like if they breed, awesome. They don't breed, eh? <laughs> like it's. Whatever. Well, yeah. I think it's. I think it's just how you grow as you you know as you do this. You know, like. At this point, for me and you, carpet python breeding is kind of like autopilot to a certain extent. You know, like little things pop up here and there. But like now, you want a new challenge. You want a new exactly a new excitement. Like oh wow, now I can breed X species. You know, red light's getting there for me now. (laughs) It's like it's oh whatever. Like somebody was like oh. Uh, I need like show me pictures of all your bread likes. I want to make sure I pick out the right ones. I'm like they all look the goddamn same. <laughs> like, yes, like and you the know, bread lie. <laughs> They're normal bread. Lie. I think of uh, you know uh, this past year, David Kelly was. It's the first time he produced diamond pythons. I got to message him because I wanted to talk to him about if he had any uh, MBB stuff like uh, lineage charts. I know he has to. Yeah, I'm sure he does. Yeah, um, I got to talk. Anyway, like, you know, I remember him, like, being Goo Goo Gaga for Diamond Pythons for so long. And yeah. To, to, to finally produce them, I couldn't be happier for the dude because I know right. how excited he was about them. And now he finally produced them and, you know, he could check the box, so to speak. Like, yes, I bred these, you know, and I, and I, and I loved every minute of it, you know. And then sometimes people breed species just to... You know, just to say that they bred the species and then they move on from that species. It's like, okay, I want to produce, you know, I don't know, Maclots pythons and but they produce them think, and then it's like, okay, the magic's done and move on. But that's know? a detriment because I think if you have success, I think you should try to do it for a number of years to try to establish a breeding population in the U.S. I mean, well, getting I, it getting it, and then selling them all because some people may not be able to recreate what you did. Right. I think that that ultimately, though, that comes down to, like we said earlier, is like sort of, you know, uh, space breeding and, what you want yeah. and what you love. You know, it's like sometimes stuff has to doesn't make the cut. But right. but like a lot of people, including myself, like it's at one point, it's like, oh, I want to try to breed all these different species of python. It's like, oh, you know, I'm putting them all together and getting I'm asking this crazy collection. And it's like, do I really care about breeding python this you know what I'm no. saying? Like, yeah, I got like you. to me for like breeding retics, I don't, I don't care, man. Like to me, I to me that doesn't. Oh, I'm breeding retics just because I was told that uh, you have someone to. want no, well that that somebody wanted a wild type retic because that's what they had in Harry Potter. Rather than fight this, I decided that the best thing it would do is to get one that's het for something that I could at least breed to make babies. So that's what I did. There you go. Damn right. The other one's a pet. Ripley's a pet. That was Matt's. Matt did that to me. Right. Bastard. But yeah, I mean, like to me, you know, and that's fine. Like, you know, you don't you don't breed them together. You just have them as a pair. Like to me, uh, a perfect example would be my my southern scrubs. Like mm. if they breed great, if they don't, whatever, whatever, I don't care, you know? And I think that 
kind of going into it with that kind of mindset is actually going to be what gives me success in the long term because I'm not going to try to overthink it. And like a lot of these crazy, a lot of these other species that people that are working with that are, you know, outside the norm, I swear to God, they overthink the shit, man. They yeah. really freaking do. And it's, it's, they want to breed. They want to right. breed. They are programmed they're, they're in their programmed DNA to do it. Like to every do it. animal on the planet is to procreate. Like, right. yeah, I got it. Right. I need to make sure that my, you know, uh, genes are passed, genes on, are passed yeah. on to the next generation. It's just a matter of figuring out what makes them want to do that. Once you figure that out, you know, sometimes people lose the magic. But for me, you know, like I could, I could, if you're going to tell me that I would just be hatching out Popwin carpet pythons for the rest of my life, to me, I would be happy you know, or coastal carpet pythons, because even the normals, every time you put, you, you got some crazy one in the clutch, you know, there's mm-hmm. always that wacky one with the wacky pattern, or it's like, you know, you could like, build oh, projects yeah. off of normal coastal prod. Like yes. if you could only breed coastals, you could still build a multiple projects off of coastals. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, so again, you know, do what you love. Do what you want to do. Do what makes you happy. And if for some reason you thought that A was going to make you happy and you have it and it's really not your thing anymore, well, move on to B, you know? And, you know, then you'll be a much happier herper, in Mm -hmm. my opinion. I think our work here is done. That's enough. Yeah. (laughs) I think we're good. Um, All right. We'll do the closing and then we'll we'll get the heck out of here. So um, if you're listening to this. Um, we are probably on our way to Australia. Yep. Um, <laughs> Sorry, guys. This is not. This is the magic of not having live anymore. This was recorded several Sundays ago. Correct. So, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, currently, um, I'm probably on the back of a crocodile. Owen is trying to in the uh, jaws of said crocodile. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's yeah. Rob is yelling at the both of us, and uh, yeah, <laughs> Keith is just uh, Keith is still looking for reptiles. He's right. decided that he can't stand us idiots, and it's just going to keep doing what he's doing. Right. So, yep. So hopefully we'll we'll make it back and have some good news to uh, to, uh, to to tell you. Uh, or this is the end of NPR forever. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, could be. So. Yeah. Um, most of the most of the episodes that you're going to hear, uh, probably until we get to the Northern Territory, are going to be pre-recorded. So yeah, we'll let you guys know when we are. This back. is going to be the first show that we're back back. Right. Because uh, what we're going to do is we're going to have the show going out, recorded the show while we're there, recorded, and then the show, the first show on our, when we come back is going to be recorded because we're going to be lagged and uh, right. dying. Right. Probably so, uh, but <laughs> my so experience far, tells me yes. <laughs> I got work that one day anyway. Um, so oh uh, boy, <laughs> I know, right? Yeah, bad man. Uh, you'll be um, fine, hopefully. But we'll see everybody when we get back. So it's usually going to be like, what'd you say it was the 11th? Yes, yeah. So November 11th will be the first show that'll be continuing but we'll have some good stuff for you guys because we know that the world tends to end every time we don't have a show for you all to listen to on tuesday nights and wednesdays right so (laughs) we've left you uh with plenty of recording right so um yeah and uh for us you can check out uh, moreliapythonradio.net um we will be doing uh, hopefully at this point when we get back we'll have calendars uh ready for sale 
Oh, um, my God. Yeah. Um, I keep forgetting to mention uh, we have that Teespring store uh, with shirts and stuff. You need to mention that. I keep forgetting it. I keep forgetting it. So we got to promote that better. So when we get back from Australia, we'll really focus on trying to come up with some new designs. Right, new designs. If you have anything that you want to see on a T-shirt that you think we should put on a T-shirt, you have till we get back to Australia to figure it out. Um, If it's a cool design, we'll toss it up there. We'll even give you a shout-out and other stuff like that. Right. Um, The... Proceeds from that are going directly to the show. We're going to be using that to maybe come out to different carpet fests, uh, Tinley Park, trying to get a little bit more travel time under our belts where we can come see you guys in various other things. So go buy some swag, and then if enough swag is sold, we might just show up near you. So that's the whole point. That's the whole point. So uh, definitely go there. There's old Carpet Fest T-shirts up there. My logo on a bunch of stuff. Eric's logo on a bunch of stuff. The NPR logo on a bunch of stuff. So if you went to a Carpet Fest and did not get the T-shirt, or if you did go to a Carpet Fest and your T-shirt looks like crap, you can go there and get a new one. A bunch of colors, hoodies, cuts, everything's there. So definitely go check that out. Yeah, you can go to moreliapythonradio.net and then just go from there, uh, and you'll be directed there. So uh, if you have any questions or comments for us, you can send them to info at moreliapythonradio.com. You can follow the show on Facebook and on Instagram. You can download the show on... um, Everything. uh, Pretty much any podcast (laughs) app. Yes, exactly. And if for some reason I've had a couple people contact me looking for us on YouTube... I don't know why we couldn't just put the audio up on YouTube. So that might be something when we get back from Australia that I start to mess with. Well, just do that. I mean, yeah, why not? that way and people then, can listen to it on there. too. Well, can we do it? And then I know like every once in a while, I'll just add a picture like yeah. if we're talking about something. Sure. So like yeah. almost like a little slideshow. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. So, uh-huh. so we, we uh, you could look forward to that. Uh, so hopefully we'll get that going. But there's plenty of places that you can listen to us. Um, and And uh, just so everybody knows we're going to get back from Australia and then before you know it we'll be winding down to the end of this season of NPR yes and dear god (laughs) (laughs) yes to my favorite show of the year oh yeah I can't wait for that holiday show which this year should be just just gonna be be insanity Jim calls you know we have to call him now because of the setup but yeah well don't worry we'll get there so we're all in control so okay for myself EB Morelia you can follow me uh, Facebook Instagram YouTube uh, get my email address Eric at ebmorelia.com ebmorelia.com is the website and uh, yeah that's pretty much that's it for me Cool. For me, you can go to rogue-reptiles.com. Uh, I would say if you are in the market for a new carpet python from Rogue, you better get up on that now because with the way these nights have been getting cooler and the fact that we're going to be gone for a week, that window for shipping will be probably closing before you know it. So jump on that. All the 2019 coastals are up on the website right now. Uh, all the tiger jags and things like that. Uh, the bread lie will be up once they finally start eating. Um, and uh, so, but I would not hesitate. I did just take new pictures of all the babies that are for sale. So go check that out at, on, at rogue-reptiles.com. You can also look up rogue reptiles on facebook.com and on Instagram at rogue underscore reptiles. That's all we have for you all tonight. So we'll say thank you all for listening and we'll catch everybody back here next week for some more Moralia Python radio. Good night. Good night.